to get a new laptop. Um, maybe at that point I'll give it a try if uh, if if it can handle it. Yeah, yeah. From winning, how many how many tournaments is it now? <laughs> uh, I guess three opens and then a bunch of the the smaller stuff. Okay, what what's the largest like in terms of player count tournament that you've won? Uh, I guess it would be in like the 900 to 1,000 range, I think it was. And then you get into these debates over whether a larger tournament is easier to win in some ways because it dilutes the player pool, and then but then you need a tougher record to, to do well. So uh, you, you can go deep in the weeds on that, but uh, <laughs> probably best not to. Well, either way, I think it's incredibly impressive. And it seemed like for a while, every time I tuned into like Magic News, there was a picture of you holding a trophy so it seemed like there was a very like compressed period of time where you just kind of blew up in the scene am i am i interpreting that correctly yeah you can definitely track me becoming like more camera conscious over time or i guess less camera conscious as uh, the yeah over the course of those uh those winner photos um but yeah it, it was all uh yeah most of it compressed into 2019 and uh it, it was weird because I, I'd like to think I did improve as a player uh, before then and then certainly over the course of that year. And it's hard not to when you're playing that amount of competitive magic. Um, but it, it was an odd sensation where if you go back to late 2018, I think I was... Uh, I, I would say I did not have results that I was happy with given where I thought my understanding of the game was. And then in 2019, things went so far above expectation that it's like... It, people i am not close to being that good i just i'm running hotter than the sun and you know things are breaking right for me and i like to think i'm bringing my a game some amount of the time um but yeah i I went from kind of a one extreme to the other in that sense and uh, as always with these things the uh the truth is somewhere in the middle yeah well either way you you certainly had a, a breakout year i think my my only experience with actual competitive play is that i built a deck for a grand prix and then handed it off to a friend and then he went 10-0 day one and then miserably on day two and (laughs) i think that's the only interaction i've had with the competitive scene other than james and i dropping in on pro tour brussels which must have been I don't know, four or five years ago. And yeah, 2015. Yeah. And I come from the background of, I, I used to, like way back in the day, like 2006, work for Major League Gaming and go to their tournaments and cover them. And there you kind of had to like fight off the fans from staying off the stations and like not tapping on the shoulders of the players. And I don't think there were any fans in Brussels when we went there. There was a a fan viewing area with like eight empty chairs, and that was about the extent of it. Yeah, I, I know. Uh, one of the the more rowdy regulars on the on the forums uh, used to make a really big deal, and rightly so, I think, out of the the kind of lack of star power that uh, the competitive magic had. And I think it's it's an uphill battle to try and introduce that. And you've seen over the past year or two with the move towards magic esports and no one no one really believes that it's an esport but we're going to try and make fetch happen i suppose um it, you, you can see that even when you do nail all of the the presentation and so on it just does not it's never going to have the same 
visual appeal and the same uh, you know, crowds in stadiums as something like League of Legends. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're leaving a lot of uh, literal and proverbial money on the table. I think in many cases, they can do a better job of presenting it than, than they have done um, in the past. But even if they were at the top of their own game in terms of marketing, presentation, and so on, I, I don't think you're ever going to get the same kind of fan reaction, fan engagement. And that's okay. As long as you're realistic about that, you can work within those constraints and, and still uh, maximize what, what you can out of that, that fan base. Um, but yeah, I think you're, it's never going to be uh, someone, you know, the, the Pro Tour champion, it, when they leave the building, it's not going to be mobbed by, by fans, people looking for autographs and so on. Even the, the literal world champion, you know, Paolo Vidal, Dama de Rosa, in a year where there's more attention on high-level magic than maybe there ever has been. Um, he got a, a decent amount of media attention, for sure, um, but still not the amount that you might expect from you know, the literal world champion in one of the oldest and largest uh, gaming scenes. Yeah, I mean, I I follow a number of different uh, esports, and there's a whole range of uh, kind of interaction from the developers support from the developers and probably the worst uh that i follow is the smash brothers melee scene i don't Mm. know if you're familiar at all but their nintendo is kind of like actively belligerent towards the scene and sending cease and desists to various tournaments who try to stream it and the scene continues to persist many years longer than anybody would have expected it to but i do find that magic is a difficult game to kind of drop into uh maybe after some absence and really be able to be invested in the game like i tried to watch some random channel fireball standard video and if you don't have like a very intricate knowledge of all the cards you don't really have any sort of spectator experience at all and yeah i'm I'm never sure how how viewer friendly a card game of this nature is going to be i i do have some awareness of the of the melee scene but that's an interesting contrast to me where with magic i am easily in the top point you know some number of zeros and then one percent of uh engaged magic fans in terms of how much I, uh, how much coverage I watch, how much coverage I I have done myself uh, as part of the the commentary team, and how much I think about you know what goes into broadcasting magic to make it fun to watch. Whereas for for melee, I I'm a casual. You know I, I watch when uh, I I hear there's a tournament on, and um, I could tell you about some of the big names in the game, but not really the the tier below that. And so I, I come to that from a more detached perspective, and. Uh-huh. So when I was uh, getting into that, so to speak, um, I would hear about these clashes that the, uh, the tournament organizers and so on would, were having with Nintendo. And that was the main source of publicity for competitive Melee. It's almost uh, becoming engaged with the underdog story and their struggle against Nintendo more so than any actual details of the scene itself, really. Um, which I, I guess isn't a great look, but then it maybe... Uh, all publicity is good publicity if it, if it gets eyeballs on it through through some way or another. Um, but I and that that's another scene as well where like the the lack of money 
leads to the incentives around competitive play just being so totally warped that it's really hard to harness that energy into something bigger and more productive. So, um, yeah, I mean, that is a, a cautionary tale, I think, in a lot of ways uh, for mm. people on both ends of that uh, interaction. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't think, obviously, they haven't cracked the code. And with Magic, it, that thing that you mentioned about visual engagement and understanding really is important, I think, where if I tune into uh, a, a stream of you know a fighting game or even some of the uh, like StarCraft, League of Legends stuff, I may have zero clue about what's going on, but often the the physics of the game engine visually kind of suggests something about how things are going. You know, if I see some unit on the board being mobbed by this platoon or something, I, I know that's probably going well for the attacker, right? Or if, right. Uh, depending on the the reaction of the crowd, if there is one, which usually in Magic there's not, uh, or the reaction of the uh, of the the broadcasters, then you can tell, okay, this is a moment and, and it's swinging one way or the other and there's this back and forth going on. And so you can uh, revel in that excitement even if you have no idea what's going on on the screen. You, you can Certainly. answer even basic questions about it. Uh, whereas for Magic, they th- there was this ill-fated move a few years ago on the Pro Tour coverage to introduce the advantage bar to, to signal to those uh, less engaged viewers exactly who is ahead um, at, at any given time. Mm-hmm. And you understand the motivation behind that, but it predictably fell very flat because often uh, the advantage would swing back and forth in a subtle way quite quickly. And so you'd have this lag between what was happening on the board and then where the advantage bar would go. And then even when the bar would move back and forth, it was contingent on the person whose job it was to move it, understanding themselves what was going on and the, the dynamics of the game. And often that seemed like it wasn't totally uh, up to snuff. Uh, either and yeah there's really no intuitive hook that you can uh, use to explain to people who's favored in a game or a matchup or whatever and why um and so you know my, my partner when she sees me you know playing magic online or something or, or watching a stream uh it is natural to ask oh so so you're ahead because you have more life points well maybe sometimes but often you know like life is a resource so so how do you factor that in uh and it, it's really tough to give some kind of elevator pitch for okay if you're watching magic and you have to try and keep up with what's going on uh here's what you do to follow it and here's the 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 one simple trick for understanding what's going on there's nothing like that and for more enfranchised players like us i think that's what helps to keep the game interesting after so many years is that it can't be distilled down into some simple recipe but it also means that for players who are coming to the game it, the barrier to entry there, I think, is a lot harder than it is, or a lot higher than it is, maybe even in some other digital card games operating in, in a similar space. Um, and that, that's why when I was getting involved with coverage myself, I shared the view that you know, my boss and some other people had that this is a, a question of player retention rather than acquisition. Our, our product has to be aimed at the players who already know what's going on and are engaged enough that they're choosing to spend their day watching this instead of all of the other things that they could be doing. Um, and the, the product should be made with that in mind. And if you try to appeal to everyone at the same time, you're going to end up with something that doesn't actually do the job for any of them and just leaves everyone feeling uh, disappointed and maybe even confused. Yeah, I'm sure we've all seen these streams where the coverage team is kind of 
trying their hardest at every moment to kind of explain the basics of things and that it kind of belittles the viewer who's actually there and does already appreciate the basics. But certainly you have, I think one of my most uh, popular articles that I ever wrote at MLG was about how I fell in love with StarCraft II just by watching it one weekend and having no no prior experience with the game at all. And that it was a game that from a viewer perspective and from the presentation was so captivating, even without any prior knowledge, that you couldn't help but get sucked into it. And certainly I have moments like that watching, I don't know, Counter-Strike or something where I just kind of get captured by the action. And I think there's... It's probably too late at this point for magic to be designed in a completely spectator-friendly way. And I don't even know how much attention something like Hearthstone gets at the pro level. Um, but I do have a, a question, since you are so involved with the uh, the pro competitive scene. I, I looked at your list of articles on Star City Games and... It seemed like you've you've done hundreds of them by this point. Is that um, <laughs> is that your full time uh, pursuit at this moment, or is magic just a piece of the puzzle for you? Uh, maybe not quite that many. I, I don't know what my total word count would be at this point. It might be a, an interesting thing to try to calculate eventually. But uh, it, it is my full time thing, and part of that is. COVID just really shutting off any other avenues for doing anything. Um, uh, and then uh, various uh, kind of like immigration paperwork stuff means that you know, getting a job here uh, in person is, is more difficult than it was uh, before. Um, but Magic has at various points over the past you know, year or two, it's been, uh, it's been so many things. And I think this is what keeps the game uh, engaging in a lot of ways is that you can uh, have a different relationship with it depending on your own life situation, your own priorities. Uh, so it's been uh, the the escape from everything else that's going on, particularly in the outside world, which has been uh, a relief to have uh, recently yeah. over the past year. Um, it's been uh, a hobby, a source of income, uh, my, you know, my, my major time sink where before I was traveling to tournaments every other weekend and now I'm I, I can't I physically can't do that, but I can uh, you know write about it, and that's become you know a, a revenue stream and uh, a way I spend my time. And it's also just a a good competitive outlet as well. You know, if I if I'm getting that competitive urge that uh, I, I need to scratch on the weekends, then I can I can fire off Magic Online and uh, and get in the trenches. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, it is something that takes up a lot of my time. But even while I was uh, traveling for tournaments and really uh being heavily involved in the competitive scene cube was always what i spent the majority of my uh kind of mental energy with regards to magic on um even when it probably should have been directed at you know what should i be playing a standard for this weekend um i, I was always thinking at the back of my mind oh well h- how can i make this work in cube or uh what does this set have that might be interesting from my own very uh unique uh cube uh, perspective um so that's uh that's just always been like a constant mental uh, diversion for me. Sure. And you you sent me your uh, kind of 
skeleton cube list that you're working on, which I've been stealing all sorts of ideas from. And do you, how often do you have a like ready to play cube on your hand? I mean, like a, a design for one, or how much of your time is spent uh, kind of brainstorming these different cube outlines? I would say so. I have my my paper cube, which uh, naturally, under the circumstances now, doesn't really get as much uh, airtime as it used to. And it was never, um, you know, before I moved, I was in an area where I didn't have a large local play group, so I didn't really get to draft that often, except at maybe the uh, the GP that we would get in England uh, every year. Um, now I, I'm in a place where we have a, a great local group, uh, more local drafters, and I can shake a stick at. But it, it was still difficult, even pre-pandemic, to to get eight people in a room together for an evening to sit down and draft. And anyone who has tried to organize Magic players will will tell you uh, how challenging that can be. Um, and so, you know, I, it would help if I had a list that I was happy with uploaded on Cube Cobra or somewhere else that I could point people to and uh, just do some test drafts off myself and keep refining that. Uh, but I have this very damaging perfectionist streak when it comes to Cube, where I'm never quite happy with the finished product, and that taints my view of the whole thing. So even one blemish, which is, is of course, going to be there in, in a cube where mm. there's no objective, clearly defined goal that you're working towards, and uh, it's an incredibly difficult game design problem, and it's a living document, so you're, you're never going to get it 100% right. But for me, that, uh, that X percent that is wrong by whatever standards kind of corrupts the rest and then I, I'm scrapping it and starting afresh. And so it's really difficult for me to ever settle and be fully happy with any one sketch. And at this point, I think I need to just suck it up and be and accept the fact that it's never going to be um, this finalized uh, item. I, I just need to, uh, to, to buck up, upload something and just let people themselves pour over it and pick it apart and hope that that creative process uh, actually improves it. Yeah, I... I also find that it's incredibly difficult to evaluate a cube list properly just by looking at it on Cube Cobra. For me, I think it, it takes a few you know actual runs through and drafts of the cube itself to I mean obviously there are some problems that stick out like a sore thumb, but um Yeah. Can you it's, kind of walk me through the design that you're like the the main highlights of the design that you're working with currently? Well, well, just as a, an addendum to that, it's also this weird uh, epistemology problem, I guess, when you're having people do these drafts on Cube Cobra or uh, Cube Tutor before, where the the AI on those sites for the the drafting process really changes your perception of what it's like to draft that cube. Where mm -hmm. uh, so. One problem that's been highlighted time and time again with the the bots on Cube Cobra is that they are explicitly designed to take lands very highly. And that includes lands that they currently have no use for, or even later on, by my understanding, if they end up in some blue-white deck and they see a stomping ground, they're going to snap out that stomping ground. It's not going to make its way back to you. So uh, that perspective on how easy it is to... Uh, Get, get fixing that you need or to you know, even just the idea of can I wheel this card where in real life maybe you can you can read the table you can kind of uh, 
get an intuitive sense of where the draft is going and maybe you know the people you're drafting with and you think all right well i can take this and then i have a pretty good chance of getting this this back in in apex time you cannot guarantee anything close to that with cucumber you know it's uh you, you can get uh you can send off a card that literally has no use in any other deck and it won't come back to you or uh your pack might have two cards, which there's no way they should ever make it past uh, the first few picks. And right. one of them just ends up making its way back. So it's really hard to know what the average uh, deck in your cube would look like uh, at a draft table versus what that same archetype in the same seat would look like with uh, Cube Cobra, kind of refracting it through this different uh, angle. So um, that that makes it really hard for me to kind of weigh up how successful my design goals are being implemented. And of course, the the AI is not going to give you feedback in the same way that your drafters in person are. So um, you can't even say, oh, what did you like? What did you not like? What would you want to see in here instead? Uh, so in that sense, it's kind of an isolating and confusing process if you're just trying to refine a cube uh, by yourself. Yeah, I think that... So I ran some Cube Cobra bot drafts in the recent weeks and I, I would go through and look at the cards that they drafted and literally every single one of my duel and shock lands ended up in a sideboard because they were just absorbed by drafters who had no intention of playing them uh, by bot drafters that didn't want them but if I think myself about the the process of trying to create a bot for drafting it seems like an overwhelming task to get correctly and i, I don't know if it's even a reasonable expectation to think that these bot drafts should be kind of any sort of testing material and for me, I just see them as a way to yeah, I'm... to kind of explore what cards are in a cube through some simulated thing. But I, I would I wouldn't put much testing faith in it. And, and let me be clear: I'm not calling out the the cube cobra developers at all. Like it's as you say, an incredibly difficult uh, task, and it's a luxury that we even get to try to approximate <laughs> what what a draft would look like via that method it's uh you know if you go back to uh the, you know the, the early 2010s when i was first getting into cube we didn't have any kind of resource like that so you, you had to just uh make your best guess by yourself you didn't even have this this additional data however reliable unreliable it may be um to use yourself so it's it's definitely a a first world problem as a, as a cube designer i do have a, a method that i've been using a little bit to uh, solo draft and it does seem to produce decks that are kind of a what you would expect from a booster draft and it's not really something that I've written much about but it's um I guess I guess the format would be called triangle sealed where mm -hmm. you take uh four of those 45 card triangles one at a time and you just go through the first step of them so you take nine cards of each triangle and discard each triangle when you're done and you get 36 cards and i think when you look at kind of the card availability and in terms of what it looks like 
I felt like what I ended up with at the end was pretty representative of a booster drafted deck. I do find those uh, second order theory questions about uh, what kind of draft format produces what kind of decks or possibilities. Those are fascinating to me. And um, I, I don't have good answers to those questions because uh, I guess then they would be uh, less interesting. Um, but I do enjoy the innovation that you're doing in that space of how do we make this you know, solo or asynchronous drafting format uh, work. And it's never going to have quite the same feel as you have eight friends around the table and you're chatting and you're drafting and mm. someone inevitably has four packs piled up by them and you kind of subtly or not so subtly nudge them into getting a move on um but i you know in terms of being able to actually engage with cube you know that's it's necessary to crack that code in order for people to be able to do that a lot of the time um so yeah i really appreciate the efforts you're going to there to try and uh make that sort of thing work yeah i guess to me there's kind of like two goals that some sort of alternate drafting method can serve one is to just make a fun experience with the number of players that you have and the other would be to try to emulate a booster draft given your limitations and probably the latter is more useful in terms of if you are testing with the you know explicit purpose of trying to get your cube ready for booster draft but we did have a a question in our mailbag about what your favorite draft variant is and the the writer mentioned utility land draft but that's just an example but it can be any sort of thing you've encountered over the years i i love lands and at any given time whatever my current cube sketch is is going to have more utility lands than maybe it should so so naturally the idea of uh a guaranteed utility land draft really uh tickles me pink and I i'm the target audience for that um but uh I, I think that you know whenever i've tried these two-player draft formats in the past or something less than the full pod experience whether it's like winston draft or grid draft or uh you know there are so many different variants all of them feel lacking in some way and i think especially given the kind of design that I try to promote where often there are some like weird and wacky synergies and uh, you're trying to build a, a cohesive deck rather than just a generic pile of cards. I think it can be a lot harder to do that when you have uh, less card flow, less total cards in your card pool, however that's being introduced to you. Mm -hmm. um, and it's much easier for, you know, like a seal deck in a cube like that to just, be completely non-functional than it is where you know you're going to have you know, some creatures and some burn spells and the the basic ingredients that you need for a a conventional magic deck or, or a conventional cube deck um so i part of why i like some of the the new twists that you're coming up with is that it does feel like a better approximation of that full pod drafting experience even though um, you know, I, I have no idea if the rest of the pod is even there and I'm just doing my own part by myself. Yeah, I I do find so some of the two player drafting variants that I looked at when I first started doing cubing um had two people divvying up a card pool of 90 cards. And 
if if I look at that just mathematically, uh, a standard 360 uh, cube has like 50 of each color. So a 90 card sample of that would have about 12 of each color. And then you're dividing that between two players. So you're lucky to get like eight of a single color. And then you're... Your your draft is kind of just like playing all the cards of three colors that you manage to get, and you're not you're not gonna have any like that's not gonna look like a deck. It's just gonna be kind of a three pile three color pile of cards. And I think what you were talking about about you know you divide you design this big environment with lots of intricate synergies that a lot of these formats won't allow you to explore those synergies at all. You're just kind of forced to play a random pile of cards. Um, yeah. It, yeah, it is. Uh, I, I remember I, I used to see this critique more back in the day, but um, people would say that the issue with having too much fixing in a cube is that it makes it too easy to draft these just kind of a three or four color mid-range soup decks where they have no kind of identity to them. You're just cramming in all of the best cards. And I feel like that's kind of where you end up with a lot of these uh, sealed or micro-sealed formats, whether you try to encourage that or not, because often you don't, you just simply don't have the cards to fill out, let's say, a, a green-white deck. Um, yeah. And especially not if the green-white deck in your cube needs to have certain synergies going on or... or certain other things happening to make it work. And so, yeah, you end up in some mopey-looking, generic, like, green-white-black deck, and maybe you you find a way to splash blue for some other thing because that's objectively the best card in your pool. And um, there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that kind of magic. It's just it, if that's not what you're going for in your environment, then you're never going to be fully satisfied with that uh, approximation of the draft experience. Do you think... Um... I remember when I first started reading Cube articles, there was a lot of talk about um, five-color good stuff. And to me, this seems kind of almost hilariously removed from my experience. And I was wondering if you had an opinion on on this kind of five-color good stuff problem that people present. Yeah, I never understood, firstly, if this problem even existed or why it was meant to be a problem if it did, where it could just conceptually, uh, you know, ideologically, I suppose, why is a five-color good stuff deck any more offensive than the mono-red deck, which, of course, is going to show up in every cube, or the, the green-round deck, or the, uh, the, the blue-black deck, which is maybe more controlling? I, I don't get what puts the five-color deck in a different category from all of those, and if the if the criticism is meant to be that, oh, you just take all of the best cards from across the five colors and mash them together in a deck, and that's less cohesive, it has less of a distinct identity, I think that five-color deck can have an identity in and of itself. And for as much as at every table, there might be one person who really loves drafting aggro decks and one person who is always drafting the control deck, in my experience, you are certain to find that one person who just loves hoovering up all the lands and then taking the best cards they can find and like setting that challenge for themselves to to make it work and to make the mana base functional and to uh, tie the room together at the end. 
and that's fine for me that that's part of the fun and i guess is if if that person isn't staying in their lane it's easy for them to accidentally take the uh the white black gold card that the 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 person who's in just white black could earmark for their own deck and maybe now they or, or they lose out on the goddess shrine that they really needed to make their mana base work um mm. so whereas if the if i'm in that white black deck and the mono red drafters to my right i can be pretty sure that they're not going to interfere with what i'm doing and we can uh, cooperate with each other uh, in a way um but I, I think the the five color deck insofar as that's a coherent concept can be a really interesting part of a cube environment and i think it inherently has more variety than any of the single colored or dual colored archetypes where if if i'm drafting the mono red deck in a cube i know what's going to go in that mono red deck and that cardboard is limited by the the 50 mono red cards or however many it is plus some it's, artifacts it's probably even less than 50 mono red cards because yeah. you're not going to be playing the pyroclasms and these sorts of things in your mono red aggro deck and i think that's a an important point is that if you're if your best decks are these like monocolor decks, I think it really limits the replayability of your format because if you take, you know, however many subsets of this like 45, 40 card pool and make 23 spell decks out of them, you're going to get very similar looking decks every time. Whereas if your format encourages more kind of two and a half, three color, whatever decks that I think there's a lot more space for your drafter to come back to draft after draft absolutely and uh so even within that that space of uh four color five color good stuff there's a lot more room for variety just because you are drawing from inherently a much greater card pool and so you can get maybe a, a five color deck that is centered on these two colors and just splashing a few cards from the others and that might look very different from a five color deck that's anchored in two of the other colors and just touching uh the 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 other two or the other three um so there's there's more room for variety and then you can also build in if you're uh if you subscribe to this uh decks not cards uh philosophy you can try and seed these uh archetypes across all five colors if there's enough depth to it so Mm -hmm. um you can have a graveyard theme across all five colors, for example, or like a landfall theme or um, you know, a plus one, plus one counters theme. And um, so, yeah, may- maybe it's rare that you get the uh, the four color counters deck that's uh, splashing this uh, this blue proliferate card over here and this red counters card over here. But when it happens, that's really cool. And, and that's not something that you can expect to see normally. And so having that kind of uh, emergent possibility within the card pool when you have that quantity of fixing, I think does lead to a much better uh, play experience versus let's say I'm in uh, the the green-white counters deck and I see this this really cool red incentive card that could go in my deck, but I know that the, the mana situation just is not going to work. And at that point, why bother? When I can take the the safe two-drop creature or this, this cyborg card that might uh, help me against some other matchup, I want players to feel like they can take those risks and explore those different possibilities. And you get that much more when you have ample fixing and it's possible to uh, do these things that even you as the cube designer, you weren't able to anticipate. But um, I I think you also touch on an important point 
uh, in terms of like cube accounting, where if your red section has the typical mono red aggro deck and then also has the these two copies of wildfire over here and uh even if i'm uh fully ideologically into the idea that cuba singleton i'm gonna run wildfire uh, and burning of Junyi anyway because well they have different names jason so they're different and that's that's okay um so i've got my wildfires over here and i've got my sneak attack over here and i've got these these other wacky red cards that do a unique thing and what's important is that at the end of the day all of those red cards add up to 50 and that all of the different disparate black cards in my black section, they also add up to 50. And that matters. That matters so much that if I accidentally add another black card, well, I have to reclassify this hybrid card over here. I have to cut something else just to keep my spreadsheet in perfect balance. And that's the kind of thing which it matters or it can matter so much aesthetically to a cube designer your players don't care. They really don't care. They don't me. notice. Like, I, I, they, they don't notice, yeah. Um, like, I, I, I can get the idea that maybe it breaks their immersion or it's confusing if they open a pack and they see a second copy of a card that they saw in the last pack. I at least follow the train of thought there. But ultimately, if your red section has 49 cards and your green section has 52 cards, I don't know how often they would have to draft your cube for them to even become aware of that if you didn't tell them. No, um, I think you'll have more variants in your color representation in a standard booster draft. And and you touched on about like five different issues that I want <laughs> to dive into. Um, so, so I'm not really here to uh, rehash the um, singleton argument too much, but I, I do think that uh, any sort of archetype that you support needs some kind of critical mass of certain kinds of effects. And I think even if you're running different, uh, I don't know, say, like a lot of red two drops are just things that do three damage a turn, kind of, no matter how you slice it. Um, and there's not a lot of kind of mechanical difference between them. Do you think that uh, on the five-color good stuff idea that bad drafters are to blame at all? Because back when I ran my paper cube and the people I was playing with were not very experienced, I think I 3-0'd like four or five drafts in a row by playing like four-color aggro. And it wasn't because of anything specific about my cube design it's that the players weren't valuing the uh lands highly enough and they weren't valuing the spells correctly so they were letting good stuff go too late and with the topic of five color good stuff if you are taking spending so many early picks on lands which you Kind of have to do to get the mana base that you need uh, against good players then those good players will be taking the good stuff in the meantime so i don't really see how like in a uh an environment with lots of high level drafters that you can get away with taking i don't know the like 10 12 non-basics you need to play a five color deck and still have the like card quality to do well against the other decks. 
I will say that I think that idea of, uh, especially the four-color aggro deck, is uh, much more likely in your cube than it would be in a typical cube, where when you have your double fetches and uh, you, you consciously build around this idea of, I want players to have fixing that's less narrowly pigeonholed into any one color pair. And then also you have some of the the slower fixing in the utility land uh, draft. At that point, it becomes possible to consciously draft towards four or five colors in a way that it just simply isn't in a lot of cubes where, you know, your your two color aggro deck often is not going to have a good enough mana base to really cast your spells consistently, if you're being honest with yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why you see, you know, especially in colors or color pairs that are meant to be aggressive. Like, I, I think if you want to have uh, a Boros aggro deck in your cube, you need to think long and hard about whether you have two drops that are like double red or double white, because it is simply too hard to cast those cards a lot of the time, um, unless you have a high quantity of fixing and it all makes its way around to the right drafter. And then also they know enough and are happy with taking that land and making the discipline pick over some other card that might be great for their deck. Um, and I don't think it's fun really on either side where a player just can't cast their spells and then even when they can and they draw out of it, it's too late in the game for that spell to matter, which is often the case for some of these uh, you know, double pip uh, two drops. But that that trade-off that you mentioned of if you're taking all of the lands, then you're you're letting the, the best action go past and you're you're spending these picks which uh, could go elsewhere. In theory, the reward that you get in return is a much broader definition of what those best cards are. Where if I'm in, let's say, black-red, then normally I'm looking at the the best black and red cards that might come around, or the best right. artifacts, or maybe a speculative splash if if everything comes together. But if I'm in four-color, then yeah, I'm looking at the best green card, or the best white card, or the best blue card, and then gold cards start to look a lot more uh, appealing as well, where, you know... Um, if I'm in a black red deck, the the black white gold card, it, in theory, I'm close to being in the market for it because I'm halfway there already. But in practice, it's still hard to to justify that splash. But if I'm in both of those colors already, then I'm very likely to end up with that card and be able to play it in my deck. Uh, so, in theory, you're kind of giving up something over here to gain a lot more back over here. Um, and how? to what extent that's true will depend on the makeup of your queue. Um, and then mm-hmm. th- that's why I think a lot of those four color decks tend towards being these kind of mid range of your control decks, because that is the, the default resting state of a cube deck, unless it's built with something else in mind. And so um, the idea of a four color aggro deck on top of being just conceptually impossible in most draft formats, um, it really requires both, careful drafting and also some lucky breaks in terms of what else comes around. And as you say, the, there's this uh, almost social contract involved with the other drafters where they are willing to let uh, certain cards come around to you and not sabotage your draft by you know, hate, hate drafting something that might be important for your deck. Um, sure. So for that four-color aggro deck, in theory, you know, you might be in the in the right colors when no one else is to play a pernicious seed, but you're an aggro deck. I don't want pernicious seed, so you, you lose out on some of those those gains that you get from uh, uh, taking all those lands early and then being able to play whatever comes around because you can't play whatever comes around, or you can, but maybe you shouldn't. Um, so that's why, to me, 
I feel like having a coherent four color or five color archetype in some ways is the kind of a ultimate cube design goal where you can uh, take the plunge, end up with all of these lands, and now you can try and build that platonic ideal of the maybe the, the artifact deck where um, if there's uh, artifact fixing across all the colors like Spire of Industry or Mox Opal or mm-hmm. Prophetic Prism, Arkham's Astrolabe, Chromatic Star, yeah, there, there's a lot on that list at this point. Um, then maybe you can play the, uh, the, the, the rare green card that cares about artifacts, or you can splash that Tezra Adrian Abolus in your uh, Jeskai artifact deck and, and actually have that work. Yeah, so one of the things that you mentioned earlier, which I am totally on board with, but I, I don't feel like I see enough of when I see uh, different cube lists, is the idea that when you are putting some theme into your cube to try to spread it into as many colors as is reasonable to support. Like in in my cube, I... I try to put sacrifice and self mill and landfall in as many places as I can. And a lot of the cube sketches I see are really focused on this kind of Ravnican design structure where they, they think of 10 different archetypes for 10 different color pairs. And I think most magic sets that you see come out aren't really designed in that Ravnican way. And I don't know that a cube necessarily wants to be. I get that it's appealing for like when you're new to design things to think, ah, here are the 10 different archetypes I'll support. But I don't think that leads to the best draft environment. I I almost uh, take the opposite view on that, I think, where I think that maybe is the best template especially if you are just building your first cube or you're not sure where to begin um, because it it offers a clear structure for you and then also for your drafters where I think it's easy to get in the trap of I want to spread this theme across all five colors. And so you, let's take the artifacts theme as an example. You can find green cards or black cards that care about artifacts. But if you chuck those in there without really any further thought, then what's going to happen is usually the artifact deck is just going to stay in blue red or white red and those artifact cards which in theory that player is meant to be interested in are just going to languish uh in the end of packs or in sideboards anyway and you've essentially wasted slots that could go towards the themes that exist in those colors instead yeah Um, i guess the the idea i've been working with is that as much as possible um when i design an archetype i want the bulk of the cards to be what I call good stuff with hooks. And what I mean by that is that, let's say you want to support uh, like some sort of sacrifice theme, and you'll probably have this card anyways, but it's the first example I thought of that you would put in like Kari's of Skyship Raider as something that creates a token every turn. And you don't have to be in some sort of sacrifice deck to want to play that card but if you are it's a card that kind of goes from being an eight to being a 10 whereas i think if you talk about i don't know a black card that cares about artifacts it's probably a card that goes from being like a two to being a seven and that 
if you're not in that theme, it's just kind of a wasted card. Whereas if you make the bread and butter of your design these cards that are playable in their own right, but have some mechanical hook to them. And to me, the ultimate example of like a, a good card with hooks is Kitchen Finks. I think mm-hmm. there's probably like a half dozen different archetypes that you could put in your cube that would be incidentally supported by that card. Yeah, I am totally on board with that. And and to me, I, I very explicitly try to build a cube such that the, the best cards in the in my environment are that type of card. Um, where if if your best cards are just these kind of uh, generic cards that go in basically any deck of that color and uh, are better than any of the synergistic stuff you try to do, uh, then you're just going to take those cards and build around those cards and not put the effort in to try and build a deck as opposed to just you know building whatever comes your way. Um, whereas on the other extreme, if you are too deep in the weeds on these these various uh, synergies, then you end up in a spot where there's actually not much flexibility to the drafting process because you just you you find your deck, maybe you're in the sacrifice deck or you're, you're in the blink deck or whatever it is, mm. and you just robotically take whatever card in the pack is good in that deck, and there's not much room to uh, to to stretch your legs. So the cards uh, like Worst Rider, I think, is a great example. So in if you're building a black red theme in your cube, the natural Go to uh, archetype. There is sacrifice, you know, aristocrats, whatever sure. you want to call it. And there are so many good tools for that deck. The card pool is so deep that you can, first of all, support that deck without even trying. But then, if you do try to support it, there are so many options that it's easy to. You know, if you just pick those at random, you would probably have a, a functional sacrifice deck. But then also, because you have all of these, uh, all of these choices, if you're willing to really be thoughtful about how you support it, then you can have a, an equally strong and equally compelling sacrifice deck that also has these hooks into other themes. Um, so, you know, Season Pyromancer is a good example. Roast Rider, as I mentioned, these cards, which they are natural fits for a black-red sacrifice deck. But if you end up in this black-red graveyard deck that maybe has fewer sacrifice synergies, but still has an interest in you know, abilities from the graveyard or making tokens and going wide, then these cards are really going to help to tie the room together. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, uh, to, to use a card, which I know you've really become enamored with recently, uh, Felidar Retreat. Um, I, I was sketching out for uh, for my latest uh, idea various themes in green, white. And so, okay, I've got this landfall theme over here and I've got this kind of a token-making go-wide theme over here. And then we've got this plus one, plus one canvas theme. And when I look at the intersections between all of those themes, there are only a few cards which really satisfy all three and Felidar Retreat is one of them. Uh, even an enchantment, if you want to go that route uh, and support some kind of uh, enchantress constellation deck. Uh, there's just so much stuff you can do with that card. And then on top of it, even if you're not trying to do anything with it, if you're just trying to fill out a deck, still perfectly good magic card, going to be one of the best cards in whatever deck you put it in. So I, I want the best cards in my format to be cards like that. And so I'm willing to give more leeway to stuff which might be more high powered than especially a lot of the cubes on on the forums are um but if they have enough kind of incentives in place around them i'm willing to forgive them for some of their sins and to to let them be the best thing going on because i think it's good when they are the best thing as opposed to some kind of you know big dumb animal that's just going to uh run away with the game by itself 
Um, have you played Slay the Spire? Uh, I haven't, but I've I've watched uh, Chris Taylor play a lot of it, so uh, I am kind of uh, familiar as a spectator. Okay, so there's this kind of idea I have from there that um, relates to what you were saying, where in that game, the the way the game is structured is that uh, the elites in Act One are just kind of damage checks, like Gremlin Knob and. Uh, centuries and I, I forget the name of the other one at this point but basically you have a, a certain amount of damage that you need to deal within say like three turns to get through them so the cards that you are taking uh in act one are just going to be basically any attacks you can find uh and they've designed the attacks in such a way that they each kind of hook into different themes that you'll flesh out more later uh, throughout the run. And so you you have, like, if you look at Ironclad, you have attacks that will shuffle um, dazes or burns or whatever into your deck. And you have the status effect archetype where you have uh, attacks that scale with your strength. And the idea being that you you take what your first picks are and in that game your first picks are going to be attacks because that's what you need in act one and you make sure that those kind of lead you into the different mechanical spaces that you will have so that i don't know like if you if you think of say chase the mind sculptor you take that because it's a good card but then once you're there you think uh, maybe i should be taking more of this top of the library stuff and I haven't put a lot of thought into it yet, but I wonder if there's a if there's work we should be doing and how we distribute the first pickable cards so that the drafters are kind of naturally led into the mechanical spaces that are rewarded by the cube. I do think you have to be honest with yourself about how much of a card's power is situated in those interactions and those synergies versus just being an incredible card. So mm. the maybe an extreme example, but I, I've almost ended up here myself in the past is, you know, Umazawa's Jude. It look look, it's a, it's an artifact, so it goes in the artifact deck and uh you put counters on it so you can proliferate it and it gains life so it goes in the life gain deck. And yeah, it does all of those things, but it also just kills your opponent because it's an incredibly powerful magic card. And that's its its primary use. Um or to give maybe a less extreme example, uh, Tezra Asian Obolus um, is, is a great hook to be in an artifact deck. Um, and one of the main reasons for that deck to, to go into black and also just one of my favorite cards sentimentally. But I find it hard to justify that card as a kind of a, as an artifact theme card because often you're not using it to find some cool build around artifact. You're not using it to... Uh, to reward yourself for, for getting lots of different artifacts, what you're doing is you're taking some innocuous Thopter token or something, you're making it a 5-5 five five and you're killing them. You're, you're just bashing them and getting the game over with. Right. Um, and so it's more of a, a blunt instrument than anything else. And so I, I think it's you, you do have to ask yourself and be willing to even question some of your favorite cards where, you know, are you interested in this card because it has all of these cool things going on or are you interested in it because it does all these cool things while being incredibly powerful and, and that's such an easy 
uh, trap to fall into. Um, so the the one that I'm agonizing over right now is uh, Yorgmoth, uh, Thran Physician, which uh, also is now getting that uh, beautiful old frame treatment in, in Time Spiral Remastered. Let me uh, uh, pull this card up on the screen. Go on. So, so this is a card which you look at it and it's the perfect payoff card for any kind of sacrifice deck in, in black, kind of graveyard interactions, it supports those and, it, and you even proliferate as a reward for that. So it feeds into kind of stuff as well. So it has all of these cool things going on. But in my experience, the card is so crushingly good if you have any kind of support behind it that you don't, the card does not give you room to explore the cool things with it unless you're consciously handicapped. That, that's the kind of dilemma that I think it's really easy to run into um, where you end up supporting this archetype and putting so much care into it, but it just gets obliterated by one of those cards just being so far above the pack and smuggling itself in there under the guise of being uh, crucial support for that archetype. Uh, the other thing that you made me think of while you were talking about uh, something earlier is um, that I think there's kind of a limit on how many archetypes you can reasonably support within one environment and i really had this hit me while i was i was trying to update the aldrazi domain cube which is just a mess but i was going through and i have a number of different things i'm trying to support and i was looking at my green three drops and kind of each of them supported something different and if i wanted to like add support for another thing i really had to cut into support for something that I already had. And you can kind of bend things a little bit with getting proper glue cards that give you multi-archetype support. But uh, Tezzeret Agent of Bolas was actually a card that I cut about a month ago because I, I realized that I just... I didn't have room in my environment who care about any sort of artifact matters card, whether or not it was just killing people uh, with five five thopters or not? Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of been my struggle with the the artifact deck trying to make that work in in blue red in particular, where you, you quickly realize that the artifacts themselves aren't really built around cards so you might end up with a few artifacts in the deck but they're not really doing that much for you or the artifacts are so powerful that they carry the game by themselves and any synergies that you might have with them are kind of secondary to all of that and then the artifacts they have the same issue where for a lot of them like that card in itself is the payoff and the fact that it interacts with artifacts is kind of by the by um so Urza is a great example of this. Obviously a very pushed card, one of the best cards in Modern Horizons, which in itself is a high power level set um, you know, for Constructed, for Cube, uh, for every format. Um, and what I found was it, most of the time, it is better to just take Urza and put it in a, an otherwise fairly normal looking deck, which maybe has a handful of other artifacts or it just happens to have other things that make a few Thopter tokens um, than it is to take Urza and think, okay, well, now I'm, I'm going to build the artifacts deck and, and see where that takes me. Um, and that, that can be okay. And that leads you sometimes to these uh, single card archetypes almost where, you know, my, my cube can have the Urza deck where Urza is the centerpiece, 
without needing a lot of other explicit support behind it. And that, that's a great place to be. When, when it comes to supporting all of these different archetypes, there is a sense in which less is more um, for me. And one mistake that you can make is to take it too far. And you say, okay, every color needs to have all of these different archetypes going on. And then every color pet has archetypes. And I'm going to try and uh, find the these uh, between them. But that can be easier said than done sometimes. And for a lot of drafters, um, trying to identify and draft a specific deck can be kind of overwhelming. And what they want to do, you know, what they find fun in their cube experience is to just draft a kind of safe-looking mid-range deck, not to disparage that at all, but that's that's what they enjoy doing. They want to play kind of good bread-and-butter ABC magic without mm-hmm. thinking about how part A from this column intersects with part B from this column. And I think it's, it's good for that kind of deck to also be in itself a part of the environment and for it to be easy to fall back to that and have that be competitive if an experiment fails. So... If I see uh, a graveyard theme in black-green, for example, I'm willing to go deep on that, but I'm more willing to go deep on it if I think that if that fails, I'm going to have a pile of good creatures and a pile of removal spells, and it might not be the best deck in that color pair or in the environment because I, I want those those best decks to be the ones that successfully draft around these synergies, but it, it at least is going to be competitive. You know, I, yeah. I can play a good functional game of Magic and, and, and expect to have a decent shot. And I think that uh so the presence of those generic cards and those generic decks actually does a lot of work to subsidize the more wacky stuff that you have going on um where i've seen some cubes that conceptually mind where they're doing so many cool things and there are so many like obscure cards that you think about how to build around and so you look at the list on cube cobra and it's fascinating but then when you get around to drafting the cube or trying to build your deck and then play your deck, that, that part actually is less interesting than it should be. Um, and so it's more of a uh, a thought experiment than anything else. And that, that can be okay. I definitely have a lot of cube sketches like that where I, I'm not really expecting it to be a good cube. I don't think you should draft it, but it's kind of cool to brainstorm. Um, yeah, I definitely it, think that when I uh, encounter an unfamiliar cube for the first time, I... I have the tendency to just want to take the good cards to start and kind of hope that that leads me somewhere. And I mm-hmm. think um, cubes are already such a complex environment that you do uh, want to make sure that you know someone can come in without uh, some full understanding of all the synergies and end up with something they can you know sleeve up and have a good time with yeah and that's why i like making it so that the cards that those people will be inclined to draft will accidentally give them an entry point to those archetypes later on so you know if i i don't know what's going on in a cube and it's so easy to make the mistake of i i have this kind of omniscience from a cube design perspective when it comes to my own cube i know what's in it i know what the goals are i know um from all of the experience I have with it, what cards are the best, what decks are the best, what might be overrated or underrated. Um, but someone maybe who's drafting my cube for the first time, or even if they've done a few drafts, they might not know that. And I need to design with them in mind. And so I I want them to be taking these cards, which seem like safe picks of them, 
But then once they get the lay of the land and they realize what's going on, they now have some of the tools they need to dip their toe in a certain archetype. So, um, you know, Blaze Splicer, for example, I'm taking that card early if I can in basically any cube I see it in because it's going to go in basically any white deck. Um, I, it, it's really hard to imagine a white cube deck that doesn't want Blaze Splicer unless you have some like incredibly bizarre white storm combo deck or something. Um, yeah. But then once I have that uh, card, when pack two rolls around and I, I can see, all right, this cube supports Blink. Well, hey, turns out my Blaze Spicer is good in there. Or there's an artifact theme going on. I, I, I have a card that goes in that. Or maybe White has some reanimation thing where you know, White has a lot of stuff that likes creatures with power two or less, or it can search up those and, and do stuff with that. And hey, Blaze Spicer is a great thing to find and flicker and reanimate and so on. Um, so whatever I end up in, I have this connective tissue that's going to tie it all together. And then also, if none of that comes together, well, hey, my generic blue-white mid-rangey control deck has a good card that I, I know I'm going to play every time. So you mentioned earlier Felidar Retreat, which admittedly is a card I've been uh, spending a lot of time with lately. And one of the things that concerns me about the card is that it's an enchantment. And I feel like one of the worst aspects design-wise of um, Magic as a game is that to interact with enchantments and artifacts, you really need like a card that specifically refers to them. And I've been, for the most part, removing artifacts and enchantments that can take over the game and also not devoting a lot of space to artifact and enchantment removal and to me felidar retreat starts to be at the kind of upper limit of how proactively strong i'm willing an enchantment to be yeah i, I see that concern and that is one of the things that holds me back on trying to go deep on something like Enchantress, where firstly, I don't think the tools are there to really support that. But even if they were, I, I don't know if that's a good thing, because as you say, it's a, it's a permanent type that's really hard for certain colors uh, to answer. So there are a few ways you can uh, respond to that. So the first is there are a lot of uh, your artifact-based uh, sweepers and so on, like, you know, not every deck can play an Oblivion Stone or a Nevernoil's disc or something, but mm. uh, a deck that's slow enough can support those and, and get use uh, out of them. Um, and then also you can try to have the focus on artifacts or enchantments be in those colors that maybe have a hard time dealing with those. Um, so, you know, if you're supporting an artifact deck, maybe you actually do want that to be in black because uh, it's more likely that the black deck that would have a hard time answering those artifacts is playing them themselves instead of having to to answer them. But that's Likewise, not really the way that the color pie is designed. It, I mean, like a lot of the best yeah. enchantments are in green and white, and that's where the enchantment hate comes in. And a lot of the best graveyard stuff is in green and black, and those also have the best graveyard hate tools. It, <laughs> it is it is a problem uh, for sure, and th that's why when I see cube designers talk about the color pie, it it makes sense for the designers of Magic to have the color pie as something that keeps them in line because they need to have this very long-term vision for the game and there needs to be some kind of consistency between 
what does it mean uh, to be in white in 2010 versus in 2020 and so on. Um, mm. But e even with that in mind, you know, th this was a somewhat arbitrary decision that was made back in the 90s. And the I think the ramifications of that in some ways have been damaging, where um, I don't think it's a good thing that Black uh, can't really answer enchantments. And until, you know, Feed the Swarm and Farika's Libation this year, like literally could not answer enchantments. Um, and that's not flavorful. It's it's only flavorful because we are so used to thinking of black in those terms because the game has been like that for so long. Where right. if uh, back in '95 black got disenchant, then no one would be saying nowadays. Well, I I think it really breaks the car pie for black to have you know like it's 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 a question of legacy more so than a question of design. And so taking that decision that was made a quarter of a century ago by people with different incentives in a different context. And applying it to a modern day cube design where the entire conceit of cube is you get to be the designer. You you are the god of your own uh, you know, of your own fiefdom. Uh, that just doesn't make any sense to me. Like if you if if it's gonna help for um you know black or red to be able to kill an enchantment or something, uh then just let them let them kill an enchantment. You you don't need to regulate yourself in that way. Um but yeah, but when it comes to using the tools that we have, it's that's going to be the price of admission is if you have uh, an enchantress theme in your cube then you know black and red are going to have a hard time with that and that that applies to individual cards too so as you say Felidar retreat is going to be tough for uh, a black deck or a red deck to answer and maybe you get around that by you know they they have a lot of sweepers or things that can like uh, mop up a board of tokens and mm. so you, you can like deal with the aftermath of the retreat that way kind of but yeah that, that is definitely a good thing to be aware of do you run um custom cards at all in your cubes because you, you mentioned I, letting yeah. red deal with enchantments um, I, I don't but I'm, I'm speaking mostly in hypothetical terms like if, right. uh, if i was drafting a cube and there was a, a naturalizer or a disenchant in red I'm not going to have a contemption fit because oh, the, the color pie is 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 broken and the, the sky is falling. Like no, I, that is probably a, a smart design choice that this person has made with the contents of their cube in mind, and that's yeah. I, you should support that if anything. I I personally shy away from custom cards not because I think they're they're bad in principle, and you know I, I've played cubes where custom cards really have added a lot to the gameplay experience. Hmm. For me, it's it's part of. Uh, this barrier to entry thing where I already design with enfranchised players in mind, but there is a another step where you're not just dealing with, let's say, some obscure card from Urza Saga, which if, if you were playing then you would know about, but if you've just joined the game, you wouldn't know about. This is a card which, unless you have played this queue before, you don't know about. And right. so I guess that, that could equalize things in, in some ways, but it also does mean that, you know, I, I draft with Chris Taylor from the forums a lot, or, or used to back when you could do that sort of thing. Um, and he has a lot of custom cards, and those really help to tie the room together in his format. But even as someone who you know, plays a lot of Magic and has played a lot of Magic in Chris's cube, I still find myself getting blindsided sometimes by, oh yeah, I kind of forgot that that card existed, or um, I wasn't quite sure what the text on that one was, so I, so I need to read it again. And that can... Uh, be alienating i suppose if uh you're coming to a queue for the first time and you're seeing um these cards which it is not possible for you to know what they do in advance um, yeah so I, I i so i think it's a, an incredibly useful design tool 
but also one that you know you have to take a lot of care with. So I think you touched on an interesting point that maybe doesn't get brought up enough is that uh, a kind of hidden resource that you should be aware of as a designer is your complexity budget. And mm -hmm. I would argue that I, for my cube, have a higher budget than most other people should have because my cube is drafted and played entirely by cube designers who, you know, are very familiar with cube cards and spend a lot of these times thinking of it. But one of the things that always, I've never been quite sure about uh, like the utility land draft, for example. I, I love the effect that it has on the games. And I think the gameplay is richer as a result of having all these utility lands, but it does add this complexity to the environment in a way that uh, frankly, is not very elegant. It's arguably more elegant in the rectangle drafting setting because then it's just kind of another row at the bottom. But if you run a paper cube, you have to kind of trudge this out at the end of the draft when everyone's excited to build their decks and start playing. And also with like the, I don't know, the, the level of complexity of your archetypes or of the cards that you run that... It is something you have to keep in mind, and um, custom cards are something that are going to eat into that budget, that it's an extra burden for a new drafter to be aware of when they tune into your format. And th there are ways to mitigate that with the custom card, so maybe the... And you, you can make this into a hook in itself. You could say, all right, my cube has custom cards, but they're color-shifted versions of cards that you already know exist and are familiar mm -hmm. with. Um, so, you know, may maybe you think, all right, I want to support a plus one, plus one counter theme in blue-green, so I'm going to color shift Winding Constrictor. So that's now a blue-green card instead of a black-green card. And so that is kind of a, a cool way to signpost what archetypes go where right. and also to get the specific tool that you want without straying too far from what people already know and you know, love and or hate. And I, I do wonder, because I've not really spent much time um, cubing with custom cards. It's something I'm not against at all, but I, I run my uh, cube on MTGO, so it's obviously not an option. Do you feel... So if if you look at like the history of Magic, there's a lot of broken cards that have come out that people accept because they're official and they've been vetted by wizards and they've been played in constructed decks. But if you get blown out by a broken custom card, I feel like players would have much less tolerance for that. I, I agree. It's, uh, you know, if I lose to Oko in cube, I might blame you for putting Oko in your cube in the first place. But my anger at Oko's design is directed towards some faceless person in, in R&D somewhere. Whereas if you made this custom card and then you put it in your cube, that's a whole other level of uh, offense, I guess, <laughs> that's been caused by that. So um, I guess you, you do kind of uh, raise the, the personal stakes there too. Yeah. One of the arguments that I, I cut from the Singleton video kind of for length is that 
when I think about cube design, and obviously this kind of disregards um, any sort of uh, nostalgia element or other reasons why people play things, but I like to approach certain questions by imagining that magic doesn't exist and that the card pool is just some overeager set of interns that are creating cards for you to consider putting into your game and if you have like a carefully crafted mana system and a intern brings to you a one mana colorless card that taps for two every turn that it's you know perfectly in your right to just fire that intern out of a cannon or whatever but because we have this history of cards that I guess there's like a, a greater tolerance for bad design that is officially bad design. And also greater tolerance for bad design from an era that maybe has some personal nostalgia for you or where you were on the right end of those design mistakes in, in constructed or whatever. So you, you have a, an affinity for them. Um, and if you look at any sufficiently large magic format, it basically is a collection of its worst mistakes, just trying to keep each other in balance in this like weird kind of uh, ecosystem, right. and you know, with varying degrees of success. And th again, the beauty of Cube is you don't need to tolerate the mistakes if you don't want to. And th this is why I've kind of soured a lot on Vintage Cube, where it can be fun in the sense that like anything very decadent can be f fun in moderation, um, but. There's only so many times I can take, you know, turn to channel into Emrakul or uh, tinker into some gigantic artifact whose only purpose in the cube is to be tinkered into play and either win games on the spot or be answered with no interesting dynamic in between. Mm -hmm. um, like, I, I, I get that that appeals to a certain audience and that for the design goals of a Magic Online cube in particular, that, that makes some amount of sense. Um, but for me... This is something I'm choosing to do with my time and asking other people to do with their time. And so I I don't need to expose them and waste all of that time um, with a card that, you know, maybe it is interesting in some ways, but it also dominates other things and pushes those out and throttles what they can do. So, you know, Oko Thiever Crowns does actually lead to some interesting gameplay sometimes, but how does that stack up against all of the interesting gameplay that could have happened with those cards that used to have text boxes and are now elks because oko is just dominating them on the battlefield without even trying right like yeah. there's... I, I had that with I don't know, a card like armageddon where mm -hmm. there were times that the game after an armageddon was just incredibly fascinating and there were times that the game after armageddon was just kind of over and I don't know exactly how you weigh those. And I did want to bring up, like, how do you personally decide um, when is a card too good for your environment? And one that we've been talking about recently in particular is Luminarch Aspirant, which hmm. when I first saw this card, I loved the idea of it i don't even support plus one plus one stuff but it just seemed like such a fun card to use and i've been pretty heavily testing my cube in recent weeks i've been playing a dozen plus different decks every week and 
the more I play with and against this card, it, it feels like a a two drop that has a removal check attached to it. And you don't even have to commit anything to like the combat step in the way that I don't know, like Hero of Bladehold, you can think of as something that's a bit of a removal check, but you can stop it by putting a 4-4 on the battlefield and doing that. But I, I've won games by just having Luminarch sit there and acquire more and more value. And I'm wondering, like, how do you make the call on whether something is too powerful for your environment? So I look at, firstly, how interesting is it in the kind of the average case? So if, does the card just end the game by itself? Does it lead to some play patterns that maybe are, are not really fun to, to play with or play against? And if that's the whole point of the card, then uh, then yeah, you cut it. Because if it works, then it's too good or too obnoxious. And if it doesn't work, then why is it there in the first place? For Aspirant, it's an incredibly powerful card that I'm going to be happy to take, pick one, pack one in, in most cubes. and But it also does rely a lot on the texture of other cards that it's working with. So what you can do is you have a generic one drop and over time you just, you load up counters there and you just, you make it into some behemoth that, that, that just runs away with the game. And then if that dies, you start loading up something else. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that, that, that play pattern maybe is not the best, but then... There's also these questions like if you're trying to contain the aspirant, then do you let do you try and remove the three three that's there currently uh, because that's more threatening in the short term, even though in the long term the aspirant is is going to be uh, tougher to deal with, or do you take your lumps from the three three and deal with the aspirant and hope that you can deal with the the three three later on? Um, when if you're controlling the aspirant, do you try and uh, load up? those counters on a certain type of creature, like something with evasion, something with lifelink, uh, something which, you know, if you have another good creature, but also a small creature, do you try and uh, make the, the big thing even bigger so that it's harder to block, and then if it doesn't get blocked, it's connecting for more damage, or do you start loading up this 1-1 one, one token so that they have to remove that, and then your big thing still sticks around? Or So I think there was a lot of interesting choices Mm -hmm. playing with and against the aspirant a lot of the time or you do and what you did against me and put a plus one plus one counter on all of your creatures and then volt charge me well well that too yeah so it, it does uh if you have any of those synergies going on then obviously it's going to be great there as well and so the, the card is incredibly powerful but it also forces you to make choices and that power is realized over time so if i have aspirant on turn two it's going to be fantastic Mm -hmm. If I draw Aspirin on turn six, let's say, it likely is still going to be good, but if I'm behind on the board, then it's, it's, it needs some time to do its job. And so its relevance does change over the course of the game, even though it is still relevant over the course of the game. And that's, you know, I, I hate the the classic model of aggro and cube where you have a bunch of these one drops which you have to deploy as soon as possible because if you draw them later in the game, they don't do anything for you. Right. Um, and so I, I like these cards, which uh, help to shape the game in the early turns, but then also have some kind of relevance if they show up later on. And so for me, Aspirant takes a lot of those boxes. And even though it is a very pushed card, I'm happy to tolerate that because I think the, the rewards are there. 
on top of that, I, you know, sometimes you can clean the answer to the aspirin. There's uh, they play the aspirin, you bolt it, or you you have a removal spell, and uh, and the game goes on, and that's fine. There's a, a kind of timing thing there where if you have a sorcery speed removal spell, then they play the aspirin and they do get a counter, and then you kill it, but then something sticks around. Um, so if you're weighing up, do I use this sorcery or this instant? Then it, it adds some complexity to to that choice, and. In this dynamic of you know Baneslayers versus Moldrifters versus Titans, which are both at the same time, you know if there are a lot of cards in Magic these days which kind of do everything at once, like uh, Uro or Omnath or you know Blights on mm-hmm. various uh, constructed formats, where okay, you, you can use a removal spell on the Omnath, but they've already you know maybe drawn a card, gained some life. They they've got so much back in return that, that what's the point, right? Or um, yeah, there are so many good cards in cube where you play them, they make a bunch of tokens, and then you kill the main thing, and maybe it even does something on the way back out. And to me, that's more frustrating, I think, than I play the Aspirin, maybe it dies, maybe it doesn't, and the question of when it dies is important, and then uh, I can try and lead you astray by trying to get you to point the spell at something else. To me, that's a much more dynamic uh, kind of gameplay than I played a card, and if if it survives it takes over the game and if it dies i i don't really care because i have something else left in the tank do you uh i feel like as i've included more of these um like when i've been updating my cube a lot of the changes i've been making have been to small proactive creatures that have been printed and i feel like if you just put all the high power uh, kind of recursive threats in your environment that it's hard to keep a balance between the proactive and reactive strategies in your cube. So like if you look at like what you were saying that it, it's hard to um, make favorable exchanges with a lot of creatures via removal spells because of all the kind of secondary value that they leave on the board. Especially if you look at something like Hanger Backwalker or the mm-hmm. Luminarch Aspirant, if you've spread the counters or uh, the Hallowed Spirit Keeper that was brought up on the forums today. Yeah, and that's why I'm I, I'm being very careful when it comes to things like uh, Blink or anything where, all right, I play a card and I get some guaranteed value from it. And generally, the the if it's not the best play, at least a good play on a following turn is going to be just unlock the same amount of value from that card again through some means. Mm. Uh, to me, that kind of gameplay is more repetitive, more homogenous than having these these cheap, high impact cards. Which uh, you know, there, there's some kind of investment involved, and um, you know, so I I think that trend towards uh, cards like Luminarch Aspirant, in that sense, is a good thing because you can fill out your cube with cards which. Um, have that relevance across the game and uh, do kind of change the dynamics of the game. At the same time, you run into this issue where if you make your proactive decks, uh, you you can say aggressive, but I think proactive maybe captures the truth a little bit more. If you make those decks able to compete at every stage of the game, well, they already are the best in the early stages because that's what it means to be an aggro deck. Mm -hmm. Um, But then also if they are still in the game when it gets to turn eight, turn nine, then those decks become the best decks in your environment almost by default. 
Um, so we, we saw this in some of the practice drafts we did where I had this uh, kind of uh, Mardu aggro deck or, or Boros with a, a light black splash. Yeah. And that deck could come out of the gates really quickly and put you to the test, make you have those removal spells or all those blockers and sometimes just grind through those anyway. But then also I was getting to these board states where it was turn six, turn seven, and okay, you you killed my one thing or you played this six, six blocker. All right, I'm going to return my scrap heap scrounger, which you killed last turn and then activate Slayer Stronghold and now attack with this. And this now is, I've just made another game winning threat without even trying too hard. Um, and so I, I, I find myself adding back in these quite juiced threats, things like the, uh, Grave Titan, for example, or Wormcoil Engine, which are obnoxious in one sense, but they kind of need to be to reward you for that investment and to give mm-hmm. you an, an, an actual incentive to uh, prolong the game to that point. And I think that is a price that I have to pay. And, and one I'm you know quite yeah. happy to pay. I think if you run these, to have a, these high end yeah. six, a high end black creature that's worse than Grave Titan and the rest of your environment is pushed to a certain level that there's just not enough reason to play a controlling black strategy um you mentioned yeah, blink I... and i i saw a a card in your list that i i put in my my next test list um uh ephemerate from the modern horizons mm. um have you played with this card in cube yet because it, it looks to me at a glance quite powerful um, it is very very good yeah um what i like about this so th- this is another case of this is going to be a very good card are you happy with this being one of the best cards for me the answer is yes because its efficiency and its power is what lets it uh dip its toe into other archetypes so for example um naturally it goes very well in 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 a blink deck but it also works as a kind of uh trick to to save a creature protect a creature so um mm. I, i'm doing a, a write-up about blink at the moment and there's this really interesting contrast uh, from Standard back you know, a, a decade ago now where in the same format, you had this uh, Revelark deck, which the the early iterations of that is where Blink came from. Like that was the Blink deck when uh, Momentary Blink uh, first came out. And then with the same card pool, you also have this Protect the Queen style deck around like literal Baneslayer Angel. You know, when you think about this... Uh, Mm. Mole Drifter versus Baneslayer Dynamic, it had both of those actual cards in it. Um, and even though you had most of the same infrastructure, your one deck was based on guaranteeing this value, and the other deck was based on uh, protecting this big singular threat, which if if it lived would run away with the game. And what I like about a card like Ephemerate is it can kind of do both halves of that equation where it can be the card that's protecting your Baneslayer you know, literal or figurative from a removal spell, or it can be the card that you you blink your wall of omens with to draw a card and then on your upkeep you do it again and, and draw another card. Um it's cheap enough that it can go in a prowess deck. And I've found it to be kind of interesting where like I had a a a white red prowess deck where all of the prowess creatures that it had were humans. And so I was also running cards like Champion of the Parish and Thalia's Lieutenant. Mm-hmm. Um and I had like Abbot of Carol Keep, which is a, a cool thing to blink, uh, but also a prowess threat. You, we got a Blaze Spicer there at the top end. And so in a deck like that, um, Ephemerate can be a 
cheap thing to trigger prowess on two different turn cycles, but then also a way to unlock more value from these cards that have this uh, ETB uh, effect. So I don't know if you could do that if that was a moment, like an actual momentary blink, let's say. But the fact that it is so cheap and so efficient is what makes it more versatile. Um, it is not just a question of raw efficiency. Um, mm. So I think that card does have some some interesting dimensions to it. So you had written a uh, like a blog post on the forums a while back about some thoughts about blue red and I these blue red tempo decks the prowess decks I I find it difficult to always get them working properly because you you think about that the cards you want are um, what was the two drop prowess you mentioned a minute ago uh the the abbot yeah the abbot of carol keep and young pyromancer um but the the cards that have been most powerful for me in those decks are often just like a serendib afrit or a koth of the mm. hammer just something that can get in for damage consistently turn after turn because it's it's hard to always um you don't have this density of cheap cantrips in your cube decks that you would have in, say, the legacy equivalent, where you can top off your number of lands in play at like three and just play ponders and things turn after turn to get your prowess going. And I was wondering what your thoughts are on kind of this blue red tempo archetype. Yeah, I think that that Delver style deck is something that can only ever exist in Constructed. And so even if that's a desirable deck for your environment, which for me is not, I I hate playing against Delvin Legacy, don't enjoy playing with it all that much. And I think that kind of aggro control deck or tempo deck stymies a lot of the more interesting decks that you can run in a format. And it also punishes the kind of... Uh, inefficient drafting that maybe less experienced players are more prone to where if their mana curve is a little bit too high or um their deck doesn't have quite the same coherence that it, it would if it was drafted with uh more focus then the aggro control decks just chew them up and spit them out and they often are not going to leave too satisfied um, mm. but if you do want to support a deck like that as you say i think the best threats are you mentioned Senator Befreed or uh, Kari Zev is one that we mentioned earlier, which I think is is great in that kind of shell too. The best threats for a spell-centric deck are often not going to have the word spell on them or, or prowess or any of these mechanical tie-ins. It's going to be these generically good cards, which you then back up with the the bread and butter card draw, counter spells, removal, um, and, and so on. So you know, the, the card Delver of Secrets is fantastic and format warping, when you can consciously build your deck in such a way that 60% of it is injuries, right? You are literally never going to be able to do that in in a cube environment. And you also don't have things like, I mean, in your cube, you do have like four or five actual brainstorms, but for the most part, you know, uh, if you're just throwing Delver into a cube, you don't have the ways to regulate the top of your deck that you would need to, to make that possible. And hypothetically, let's say you built your cube such that Delver actually was a consistent card. What you might find is that the other spell-based threats 
in your cube suddenly look worse than you were expecting because a lot of them pull you in these different directions where, you know, Young Pyromancer is also a threat that cares about spells, but it just wants you to cast a lot of spells. It doesn't care about where they are or what they are or what they're doing. It mm-hmm. just cares about sheer uh, quantity, right? And then there are other threats that maybe let you copy spells or flashback spells, uh, play them again. And those really do care about what those spells are because you want high-impact spells that you can uh, double down on. Um, or you might have these prowess threats where you need to cast spells within this specific timing window or on the other end, like the, the best prowess threat that doesn't even have the, the word on it is Sprite Dragon because you can just cast spells whenever and just keep the counters permanently and that becomes this scary threat that, that runs away with the game. So these decks already have this tension where you have to balance a, a tiny handful of threats with all of these different spells and you then become quite fragile to removal. You often are not going to have cards like Force of Will or Days that can protect um, your threat at a low cost. Mm-hmm. And so you end up being weak to just the generic removal spells that every cube deck is going to play. Um, and then you find that those threats don't even work in harmony with each other uh, the, the whole time. So I've also found it were- quite uh, difficult in those decks to... Um- they don't have a lot of card advantage in Q. Yeah. And yeah, that, that's the thing as well, because those decks, in constructed at least, rely on having this very low mana curve. So you're not going to find a card like Fact or Fiction, for example, in a in a legacy or modern uh tempo deck. Um, whereas in Cube, you kind of need that card flow and you expect the game to go long enough that a card like that is realistically castable. Um mm-hmm. so unless you have you know, you know, stuff like Ancestral Recall or whatever, um, you know, you, you're you not going to be competing on that axis, but you really need to in most games of Cube. Like, that's just how the format works. Um, so I think these spell-based tempo decks are kind of a trap a lot of the time. And if you want something that's vaguely adjacent to that, what you want are the slower decks where the threats are maybe a little bit more expensive. Um, and... But they're they're more self-contained. They don't ask that much of you. Uh, so something like uh, God Eternal Kefnet is a very pushed example. But this is this is the kind of thing which makes me think I want to be in a blue base spells deck because um, I'm going to prolong the game to that point and it's going to function as this mid-range control finisher with good stats. But mm. then also, if I can unlock the potential on that card, then the ceiling is is sky high. Um, or something like you know, Real the Everwise is a kind of a nice blue-red incentive where, yes, I can uh, mill myself a bunch, play a bunch of cheap spells, fill out the graveyard, but then also you have this mechanical tie-in with you know, some of the discard stuff going on in, in blue or in red, um, and you can turn that into its own... Yeah, you, you can turn that into its own engine, or like, I, I'm happy to go up the curve and play like a one of these dragons, you know, Glorybringer, Goldspan Dragon, Thundermore Hellkite, all kind of interchangeable, um, but... To, to me, that's a more successful model for how these decks need to operate versus, you know, I'm going to have uh, you know, Delver and Young Pyromancer and Dreadhold Arcanist and then 20 one-drop spells. Like, there are not that many good one-drop spells in the entire game that you can pack into your cube, let alone draft all of them and then have the deck be structured in a way that can use all of them. Like, it, it just is mm-hmm. a pipe dream. And it's th- this has been my recurring issue with uh, Blue-Red is that all of the most obvious uh, themes to support end up being 
subtly difficult to build in their own ways. And you, you have to kind of go through the ringer and come out the other side to realize the, the flaws of each of them. Yeah. And another thing that I, I saw you mention, maybe it was a different post. Aspen said that the 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 title of the post that I was looking for was Revisiting Is It? Uh, <laughs> it, it, it was not, but it should have been. Ah, uh, it should have been indeed. Um, was that there are some mechanics that have been printed lately that help you increase the spell density within your deck. Um, mm-hmm. And specifically, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the adventure cards and the uh, dual-faced uh, spell lands from uh, Zendikar. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, those, are, those are all fantastic. Um, you know, the, the, the spell lands, the DFCs have been just an incredible gift to cubes of basically any type. Like I, you, you go on a mtg salvation or on you know cube twitter cube discord you'll see people who have like high powered fairly mainstream vintage cubes uh just being incredibly excited for those cards and, and rightly so they just there's such a, a gift to any kind of cube format and likewise the adventure creatures uh if you play much standard you you might be sick of some of them at the moment because they are so so good so efficient so flexible mm. um but you know a card like Bonecrusher giant to me, it's you know it's great against aggro decks. It's great in aggro decks. It's again any red deck is going to want this card. And to me, that is where I want to put a lot of my my power points, if you want to call it that. Yeah, I I'm a bit hesitant. I mean, I I don't play standard, but I I have been playing a lot of these cards in cube lately, and Bone Crusher Giant seems quite pushed but i'm i'm willing a little bit to look the other way because i think that these cards have such interesting play patterns to them yeah so i think one when you asked earlier about my my tolerance for certain uh obnoxious cards or or styles of gameplay one big difference for me between cube and constructed which is you know i i would say compared to most cube designers i both play more constructed and then draw more inspiration from constructed as well in a format like standard for example you will often have uh, a removal spell or some kind that really heavily constrains what's possible in the format and bonecrusher giant at some points has been one of those cards where it was really tough to justify playing a two drop that died to the the stomp half of bonecrusher giant because okay. it you're you're getting that trade and then they're also getting this four three that they can cast later out of the bargain so you would see people do these really drastic things like just not playing two drops even the very push ones like like luminar gasperin that die to a bone crusher giant because the the sacrifice there just just wasn't worth it um and this has been repeated time and time again you know you you go back to the days of flame tongue carvu you know 20 years ago where your creatures had better have five or more toughness because otherwise the bar is is set so much higher or through to the present day Maybe the most egregious example of all time, actually, is uh, Teferi Time Raveler, where it, it was so tough to play any kind of Baneslayer-type card, including Baneslayer itself, in a format where Teferi was legal, because they would just bounce it and draw a card, and you mm-hmm. would be down mana in the exchange, and they would have this thing that stuck around, and it, it was just a bad proposition all the way around. Um, but then with Teferi, it applied that test also to different card types like artifacts and enchantments and also two spells because there were whole classes of spells that were effectively illegal to play in standard because 
they didn't function against a fairy. So um, hard counter magic was unseen in standard for you know a year and a half because of Teferi, basically. Or um, Finale of Promise, which was in the same set as Teferi, this this really powerful, flashy build-around card, which uh, a, a great incentive to get into some kind of spells deck, whether it's in Limited or Constructed, completely unplayable because of the way that Teferi's worded, Finale doesn't work because you can't cast the spells again. So like stuff like that, where there are so many cards that never get a chance to breathe in Constructed almost by accident because right. there's some other card from three sets ago that lines up too well against it. And so you just you just can't play that card in your deck. Um, and to me, Cube is a forum where those cards get a chance to shine because even if that uh, that predator in the food chain is a part of the environment, you know, I, I, I think you probably should not put Teferi Time Rabbit in your cube, but let's say you did. It, it's still okay to... Uh, to play your Baneslayer Angel because what are the odds that your opponent has both drafted and drawn and gets to resolve the Teferi, right? It's less of a common play pattern. The issue that you get is when too many types of card like that end up in the environment where if I'm against a blue-white deck that has Teferi and, let's say, Jace the Mind Sculptor and, uh, I don't know, like a a Mana War type effect or like a Venser, Sir of Temptation... It is so easy for that dynamic to slip back in almost by accident. Where, um, and it's worse in this case because you you place this implicit trust in a cube designer that the cards that they let you draft are going to have a role in some way. And mm-hmm. if there is so, uh, you know, Wooden Wanderer is a good example that I've seen in some of your cubes. Great card, really interesting card, but Reflected Mage was in the same standard format, so you just couldn't do that. If I show up to your cube and I see Woodland Wanderer, I'm thinking, oh, cool, I, I really like that card when it was previewed, and maybe this is now a chance to see what it can do. And if I'm now facing maybe not exactly Reflected Mage, but the same type of card over and over again, then it's like, why you bother, you know? Yeah. Um, so you really have to be conscious of how the the cards that trade with something but also give you something in return uh, can have this oppressive impact on the more interesting things going on in a format. I am wondering, because I have uh, some cards that I've played with in a a casual deck and I'm already attached to them, perhaps unreasonably. Do you find yourself heavily influenced by the cards that you've won thousand person tournaments with (laughs) i absolutely do and uh a lot of those have a lot of sentimental value to me i even had uh, an explicit rule for myself at one point that if i had some high profile finish with a deck i would try and find a card that i could port from there into cube to um to kind of activate that nostalgia get that easy dopamine rush uh, Mm -hmm. for me and in some cases that's a lot easier than others because uh a lot of those results have been in modern, where sometimes the decks are built with this very uh, specific or obscure uh, goal in mind and, and cards which really only work with other specific and obscure cards. Uh, so what one tournament, for example, was with this like, artifact-based prison deck um, where you have like Word of Invention and a Snaring Bridge and the, the Thopter Sword combo. And mm. I don't want to put a Snaring Bridge in my cube. I don't want that to be a part of the environment, but I played it at the time because... That's what Bridge does. It's an automatic win against a large chunk of your uh, potential uh, opponents. 
that's not something I want to recreate in Cube. Um, but that is such a narrow archetype that like the literally the most flexible card I could think of from that deck was Tezra Asian Abolus, whose issues we've discussed uh, previously on this episode. Um, so that that's uh, easier said than done sometimes. But yeah, so uh, a more realistic theme was uh, I had this uh, hardened scale deck that I won a PTQ with in Pioneer. And that was such a cool deck. Um, you know, it was this like uh, synergy aggro deck that could also play these long games and you, it prompted you with these really interesting decisions uh, at various points. And that is exactly the kind of gameplay. And also, I, I mean, I love plus one, plus one counters. I love just like stacking dice everywhere and moving things around. And mm-hmm. that, that just, just like activates something primal in part of my brain. I don't know. Uh, but I, I really wanted to support that deck. And that gave me the template for how to do it, as well as uh, increasing my enthusiasm to do it. So I, I definitely do draw on a lot of that experience, uh, whether or not it's for purely sentimental reasons. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you, as someone who's kind of in the scene, um, about how you think the the pro players in general or wizards view Cube, because obviously wizards is a a business um and i find that since i've started caring about cube the amount of money that i've invested into wizards (laughs) products has gone almost to zero uh my wife does like playing pack wars every once in a while so i don't know once a year or so we'll pick up a couple booster packs and rip them open for an afternoon's fun but do you have any sense from your your time in the in that part of the community about where cube fits into the picture i think from a purely money-making standpoint it's the the pool of cube designers is inherently a much smaller one than commander let's say which is you know, easily the biggest single subset of the, the player base uh, at the moment. So you end up with a lot of cards which are designed for Commander and included in Commander products, but those happen to be the type of things that maybe wet our whistles the most as cube designers. Um, it's rare that you get cards which are explicitly designed for cube but don't really have applications elsewhere. And in part, that's because it's hard to picture what that kind of card would look like, right? It would have to fill a very specific niche. And Mm -hmm. so even if you could identify that, it just wouldn't be worth your while uh, to do it. In terms of how they view Cube, um, you you, you saw uh, Cube in some form has come to Arena. They have the the Arena Cube, which uh, you can make some criticisms of, and it, it doesn't seem to be highly curated or have a particular goal in mind but they know that this is a uh, an experience that a lot of players love to have and so hey that they're going to uh put the work in to to make that available and and reap the benefits and likewise on magic online you you see a lot of these uh spotlight cubes a bunch of kind of more experimental designs that they showcase for a week or two and and players get to try there and then also vintage cube comes back uh very often these days as a as a guaranteed money maker they know that that's popular and they know that people love just sinking their teeth into that so um they know they can always go back there it's not something that has much place in the wider competitive ecosystem i mean i mean that being said there is the 
Magic Online uh, Championship Series this weekend, where mm-hmm. you know, Vintage Cube is one of the formats there. We're going to get to see this competitive live-streamed uh, Vintage Cube draft. So I'm actually covering that with a friend of mine, Jarvis Yu, just, just independently on his channel. Um, there, there's official coverage as well. But I, I'm kind of looking forward to that, just to see how players who, you know, some of them, they they never cube. They don't draft. They they don't play limited. They only mm-hmm. uh, some of them only play vintage or they only play pauper. Even you know we had a a curbing small forums actually in the the bigger mocks a, a few months back. Who yeah, he qualified via pauper right and so but he also is a cube enthusiast who has to redirect that that knowledge and enthusiasm now to vintage cube. So that that's that was a fascinating thing to to to, to bear witness to. Um, but you like in i think it was 2012 in the world championships they had like a a live paper vintage cube draft where they they source all of the cards and you you know that you you had like an actual in-person cube event so that was really cool so it shows up from time to time and it's always interesting when it does that being said i don't know how like elitist or kind of or gatekeepy this this is of me but i always wonder when that is the introduction to Cube for uh, for a wider audience that does uh, it comes with certain assumptions and baggage that are baked into to that Cube to the overall design philosophy. So if you you tune into this tournament coverage and you see the Vintage Cube and you've never seen Cube before, that really I think is going to define what Cube is to you, and it might be difficult to break out of that mindset and challenge uh, some of those assumptions uh, later on. So I'm always glad that more people are talking about Cube, but it's from from a perspective where I don't know how much I have to to add to that conversation. Yeah. I I think from what I've seen since I've come back in the last couple months is that at least on Reddit, people are much more open-minded about what a cube can be compared to how they thought about it say five years ago um but it is certainly you know you say that cube is a niche uh kind of within the cube design at least within the magic community and we are existing kind of even as a side sub community within that so i think we're yeah we're sitting in a very uh small bubble hello elf lawyer thank you for joining um what uh what i will say is that i think that being in that small bubble off to the side somewhere it means that we have this welcome distance and insurance from some of the design mistakes which magic has been subject to over the past few years so if you, if you look back at 2019 in terms of constructed that year the, the sets in that year blew the lid off what you could expect in in modern car design so uh your war of the spark modern horizons uh throne of eldraine and basically most of the sets uh since then mm-hmm. each of those have had cards which revolutionize every single constructed format and often not for the better you know you had your okos you had your euros um you had invention to fairy like all of these highly obnoxious cards which people grew sick of and you had more standard bannings in the past 18 months than you've basically ever had since the days of all of the broken urza's block nonsense um, sure. at the same time 
the the past few years i think have been the best ever in terms of cube design and interesting cube cards and being able to fill in those gaps which uh we were begging them to fill in before so when i talk about um making these aggro decks more interesting and allowing them to compete at all stages of the game you don't need to run a dozen identical savannah alliance clones now to make white aggro work i I would say you never did and we can come back to that in a second because i have a a a long rant uh on on that topic but you you now can fill in basically every spot in the curve in every color in your cube for whatever niche with an interesting card that has a, a certain role to play and that's so fantastic it really opens up all of these possibilities um and that's something which anecdotally i found so much harder even as recently as like late 2018 early 2019 where we have so many more tools to work with now and so even Mm -hmm. though there's this inherent uh challenge baked into balancing constructed where if if there's a card that's a little too good or a little too constrictive on other cards in standard you have to deal with that problem for the next 18 months at least unless you you pull the trigger once again and end up banning a card in cube you can either just not run that card in the first place you can test it and then uh see whether you want to continue running it and then also all of the other stuff that maybe gets pushed down uh by that card in in standard gets a chance to breathe and you get to use those cards to their full potential so for me my appreciation of cube as a forum for that has been heightened over the past uh 18 months where you constructed has been through this really turbulent period but cube has become both a better refuge for that and also we've gained so many new goodies that i you know i can't wait to like try them all out so you mentioned that uh kind of aggro decks can become more interesting over the long game than they used to be i had a game against james in our in our stream last thursday and I, I tried to put it into the the video, but the game itself was like 45 minutes. And he was playing a deck called Four Color Mono Red. And it <laughs> okay. used to be that, um, you know, these aggro decks, if the game got to, say, turn seven, they basically had to scoop unless the opponent was like within potential burn range. And this game... it. It was intricate and skill testing and full of little micro mistakes all the way to like, I don't know, turn 18 or something. And I think that's not the the type of gameplay that my cube would have produced seven, eight years ago. Yeah, and I think there are even fewer excuses for that narrow-minded focus on you you need your deck needs to have 10 one drops and you need to have this blistering fast aggression i don't know how true that ever was but i think it's even less true now when you have these other options and for my money more interesting options available mm-hmm. to you and uh my my colleague at seg uh ryan overturf who does a lot of the the cube content over there he had a a good piece recently breaking down just what's required in order to support this classic model of aggro in a cube where you, you care a lot more about card quantity than you do about card quality so if your theory is your aggro deck needs to have eight to ten one drops in it 
firstly, you don't get to be too selective about what those one drops are. You're going to have to play some that maybe are not that interesting or even that powerful just to make up the numbers and hope that they they get to those players. And you need to be able to fill in the gaps with these uh, generic effects like burn or removal and so on. But the point that uh, Ryan really drove home was that this idea of aggro is necessarily very exclusive and very on the rails because when you care so much about the the density of an effect and the quantity over the quality, you need to make sure that those cards can actually make their way back to the players in question. So let's take red one drops as an example. A card like Grim Lavamancer is going to go in most, uh, uh, not just mono red aggro decks, but most red decks in cube in general. Mm-hmm. And normally that would be a great thing. That would be a you know, one of the main selling points to put that kind of card in your cube. But Ryan's point was that if you're trying to really explicitly support mono red aggro, that almost becomes a downside because the green red mid range deck or the blue red controly spell deck over here also wants that Grim Lava Master. So they're mm. going to take it. And that's one less one drop that you can add to your column to uh, support this Blitzkrieg aggression. Yeah, um, that was actually but- a point that was made in the uh, Mark Rosewater glue article that i linked to in the video a couple weeks ago is that you know he he talked about some cards you want to be supporting multiple things but you also have to make sure there's cards that get to a specific drafter that not everybody wants yeah and likewise you know the the red burn spells which you can expect some amount of in in every cube you know is is char or incinerate the better cube card well by most metrics you would say incinerate is by far the better cube card and one big part of that is that it's more flexible it goes in any red deck uh, for the most part whereas only a very aggressive deck is going to want the char but as as ryan mentioned this for a red aggro deck you need them to be able to rely on picking up the chars and the fire blast and these these cards which are pigeonholed into the aggressive strategy because if the black red deck over there is snapping up the incinerate, then you don't have the tools to work with. So if you want to support that kind of aggro deck, you, you firstly need to devote a lot of slots to it just to have the, the density of, of the, those cards that are required. And you also need to make those cards as narrow as possible so that no one else ends up getting them by accident or by design. Um, so you're, you're filling your, uh, your cube with these cards which only go in a certain deck and this presupposes that people want to draft that deck in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. In my experience, there is more enthusiasm about basically every other kind of deck type than there is about the kind of clinically efficient mono red or mono white aggro deck. And sure, there, there might be one person at the table who loves being the fun police, love, loves that kind of play style, but um, that's usually fairly limited uh, in, I will in my experience. say that at least back in the day when I played other cubes say five six years ago that mono white uh cube aggro decks were the most boring thing i've ever played in magic just these linear vanilla efficiently statted creatures and then you pick up your cards if their worm coil hits the board and those decks are Punishing to newer players or less experienced players in in several ways. So firstly, they punish any 
inefficiencies in the decks that those players draft. So if they have some dirty mid-range pile that maybe their mana base is taking a few creative liberties and uh, they, you know, they they took that flashy four drop over the two drop that might help to fill out the the lower end of their curve, the aggro decks are going to punish them for doing that and not in a way that they are going to find fun or interesting. And then also, if they try to build those decks themselves, aggro decks give you less room for maneuver in terms of uh, how well you build them. And and also, I think, how well you play them a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So we all have that experience of you you show up uh, and there's someone who's built this, you can't really call it an aggro deck, but it's a deck that has like Savannah Alliance on one end and then Angel of Serenity at the other end. And you know that deck is not going to perform well because it's not a coherent strategy. It's just a pile of cards and that Savannah Lions is going to be useless in 90% of games. And the games where you do draw it and play it on turn one, the damage isn't going to matter as much because the rest of your deck isn't configured to to maximize on that and and exploit it. So so these aggro decks also have the effect of pushing out uh, newer players and making the cube uh, more exclusive. And the the defense that you often hear is that the aggro decks play this important role in the food chain where um if you don't have aggro then people just get to draft these dirtily slow control piles and the, the slowest deck wins you end up in this battle cruiser magic which first of all i don't know why that's a bad thing you you do actually need to show your work on that if you're gonna enter that as a point in the discussion but then also for aggro to play that role it does actually need to be drafted and to do that. So what I think actually happens most of the time is either nobody drafts aggro, and so you have all of these, uh, you know, uh, Falconrath Gorders or whatever languishing at the end of packs and no one picks them, no one plays them. Or someone does draft them and maybe they go 3-0, they, they beat up on all of these inefficient decks, but people don't learn their lessons from that. People don't feel like I am being regulated by this mono-red deck and I need to build with that in mind they think i'm going to play the cards i want to play because this is meant to be a fun experience and Mm. if i lose to mono red that's that's not going to be fun for me but maybe my other two matches are going to be fun instead so if we're supporting these decks it's it's very hard to unlock the fun which they're meant to add to an environment they distort the dynamics of of a cube format in ways that i think are, are very damaging and also they demand so much more space than any other deck that it becomes difficult to do anything else at the same time. And so, to clarify, the, the decks you're referring to are the like eight one-drop aggro decks. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And so if if I said to you, and there are new threads about this on the, the, the subreddit or the or cube forums uh, all, all the time, if someone said... I want to support a tribal theme in my cube. You know, I, I love goblins. My playgroup loves goblins. I want to have a goblin deck in my cube. The response all, every single time is going to be, that's too narrow. Uh, that you, know, you, you have to waste too many slots for cards that only go in one deck and the cards aren't, aren't even that good. And um, this, is, this is a lost cause. You can't do this. Mm-hmm. Or if, if someone says, should I support Storm in my cube? What, what are the pros and cons of doing that? The con that's always at the top of the list will be, and rightly so, is that these are very narrow cards that lead to this unique play experience that can be alienating for people on the other side. And so you're, you're kind of bloating your cube with these narrow cards, which 
maybe are not serving a useful purpose anyway. Do you think it's important to let um, new designers kind of make these mistakes, though? I I do think it is. But when... So I I maybe would not respond in those terms myself. But my, my point is that those criticisms, to me, are far more true of the generic aggro decks that most cubes have had baked into them for mm. for years and years now and in a more pernicious way because those decks get a free pass because they're just assumed to be this necessary part of a cube environment when that's not true has never been true and is less true now than it ever has been and so i think to me that would be my first piece of advice um for anyone who is kind of like stumbling across most conventional cube wisdom is to unlock yourself from that mindset of what aggro needs to be or should look like and that gives you so much more freedom to do so many more interesting things um and you know if i could go back in time and impart that wisdom to myself or or to others then i I would 100 percent do it because i you know i I wish i'd had that revelation ahead of time all right so we're going to um dive into our mailbag uh, a little bit and let's uh let's try to briefly kind of address these questions uh first question do you cube on magic online and what if so what's your favorite cube that you've played online i i do uh i do cube on magic online whenever the the vintage queue comes back or i usually do a draft or two and then um if there's some new themed cube i'll I'll give that a try just to see uh how i like that and if there's anything i can glean from it um i i find that the vintage cube on top of the the stuff I mentioned about, oh, sometimes you just get sent to the Shadow Realm by Turn to Channel or something, mm. is also just uh, the, the goals are so different from my own that it's it's hard to appreciate sometimes. But then also, I think the the fast manner, like the Moxon in particular, are such a bad place to put your power and to have be the best cards in a cube environment where they're not even doing anything interesting by themselves. All they're doing is letting you just cheat the manicism of the game by causing all of your cards ahead of schedule. So I, I can at least appreciate the finesse if I lose to uh, a busted reanimated deck or a storm deck or something in the vintage mm-hmm. queue because, okay, th- the person on the other side there drafted with this in mind and they must be really excited because it all came together for them, so, so good for them. If I lose to a generic cube deck because they, they drew their, their Mox Ruby... And therefore, all of their spells effectively cost one less, and I'm I'm going third. You know, if I'm on the draw, effectively, it's like, well, okay, where, what am I meant to take away from that? Where, where where's the fun that's that's being had there? You know, yeah. um, so I, I find Vintage Cube pretty frustrating there. And even when they bring back the other cubes, a lot of them don't seem to have any kind of uh, explicit design goal in mind. So the modern cube, which we haven't seen in a while. It's just a pile of planeswalkers and interaction and generic creatures and so on. And that that can lead to interesting games, but those games all feel the same as each other because that's that's by design. Yeah, that, that's the entire point. Um and then you you have a bunch of these individual, you know, spotlight cubes, which uh have uh, so a, a few recent examples. There was a Tima cube where um uh, there was a Grixis cube a while back as well. Uh, there's been a Jun cube, I think, where you, you take a, a shard or a wedge and you you just confine yourself to that. And I think that's actually an interesting model that's worth exploring a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the time, even if the original list for those was tight, well-constructed, you know, uh, 
you, you could tell what it was trying to do. The demands of a mass market cube for that audience where it has to be larger, like that, that is uh, an explicit goal that they're told. You, you have to build a larger cube. And also you have to build with certain audience sensibilities in mind means that it's easy for those to stray from their mission statement. And and, and some of them, you, you question what was going on there to begin with. So with the team cube, there was a, a lot of really fun stuff going on in there. But then you also had like a, a tribal theme with a bunch of elves cards and uh, some other stuff where like, I I don't know if this deck can ever come together. And if it does, I don't think it's even that good. So if you could reiterate on that cube, then maybe you'd swap out those parts of the design and you'd add something uh, different in its place. But because the cube is submitted as this fixed snapshot in, in a cube design, any uh, weakness in it is replicated and enforced yeah. but then also any cube that goes on magic online is drafted an order of magnitude more times than any paper cube ever has been or ever will be just automatically um, do you think a so, cube with your design <laughs> sensibilities will ever be published on no. magic online <laughs> in part that's because some of my cubes include like silver border cards that literally are not on the program and cannot <laughs> be implemented uh, into the client but Another part of that, I think, is just, you know, I I freely admit I am not the the typical audience member, and I, I should not be treated as such. You know, I mm. selfishly I think it would be great if I had a cube that was designed with me in mind. I don't think they should do that from a business standpoint or from a a gameplay standpoint necessarily. Um, but, but do you think the if like a Riptide cube were dropped on Magic Online, what what do you think the response would be? Uh, it, it would depend which one, honestly, because I, I think we are at the point, even within the the scope of the forums, where, where within the narrow cube island, we're like our own like little hamlet off yeah. the, the north coast somewhere. Um, even within that small community, there's a lot of disagreement over you know power level, what constitutes mm. uh, GRBS, which if you're not from the, the forums, you might not know what that means, but like game-ruining bullshit. Um, some of us have a high tolerance for some things and others. Some of us have attractions to different play styles, different cards. So I don't know if it's even coherent to say such and such is a Riptide cube um, at this point. Sure. Um, but if if one of them did go up, I think it mostly would be received uh, pretty well. Although you will get the people who ask, okay, where's where where are the tinkers? Where's the channels? You know, where's the the stuff that I personally know and love from the Vintage Cube? And you're never going to please anyone. And if there is uh, a a flaw or just something missing from the design the the process of having your cube drafted this many times by this many people will expose that flaw and so in that sense it's the best testing process you could possibly ask for but mm. at the same time it means that if you do have that perfectionism that i alluded to at the top then you're, you're not going to be fully satisfied because something will come out that you have to change and improve and that might not be an easily fixable problem sure do you have a favorite set or block uh, so how much of this is nostalgia? I don't know, but, uh, the original Ravnica was what like really, especially some of the art and the flavor of that block was what really, uh, hooked me into the game. And, and I haven't left since in retrospect, uh, and you know, Cedric Phillips and Patrick Sullivan, who is a professional game designer have, uh, have this podcast series recently where they go back and revisit some of these older sets. And they mm -hmm. went through the Ravnica block and exploring some of what really worked and some of what really didn't work. And a lot of that 
that block has not aged especially well, but it has a sound to it that uh, you know, has stuck with a lot of people and gave it a kind of uh, free pass. And in that sense, I think I was lucky because I came up in an era of design that was very easy for me personally to get attracted to. So we had Kamigawa, Ravnica, and then Time Spiral was what really moved me from someone who was uh, you know, a casual observer and enthusiast to I really want to dive into this game as much as possible because I want to understand all of the backstory here and all of the you know, all of the subtle references on these cards, the the in jokes and so on. Um, and also, some of these designs are so wacky that I want to put my deck building scores to the test and really see what I can do with these. Yeah. Um, so m- maybe the answer is time spiral, honestly, and and, and that block. Um, and you know, there, there have been some good sets uh, since then, but uh, those will always hold a, a special place in my heart for sure. Okay, uh, you've you've mentioned a couple. Um, do you have a common piece of cube advice that you think is bad and or misunderstood? I would say the so in terms of cube design, the aggro thing that I mentioned, I don't need to relitigate that again, but that that would be my my go to answer there. In terms of actually. Uh, drafting and playing cube i think a lot of especially cube content creators massively overvalue um fixing and specifically fixing under the guise of staying open so what you'll see often is it's you know pack one pick two pick three someone will take a uh you know polluted delta let's say over a a strong card in a color or maybe even a decent artifact because this helps me stay open. I don't want to commit to anything yet. And, you know, down the line, if I pick up the right dual land or something, this could let me splash a color and so on. In reality, when you're doing that, you are effectively taking a narrow gold card that only works with other gold cards. So let's say I I take that polluted data. If I end up in any color combination other than exactly blue-black, that will not be direct fixing for me. I need to pick up some other piece in order to connect the dots there, whether it's uh, you know, a, a dual land that has a basic land type and it has to have the right basic land type to, to make all of that work. Um, and if so if my blue-white deck wants to play this polluted delta, maybe the Hallowed Fountain does come along, but it's in the same pack as you know the, the Wrath of God that I really need for my blue-white control deck or the, the good blue-white gold card, which is the entire point of needing this good mana base uh, in the first place mm-hmm. um and so you commit yourself to these further sacrifices with no guaranteed payoff and even if that all comes together it's you, you need to be sure that what you're getting in return for those speculative picks and it is picks plural most of the time you, you need to be sure that the juice is actually worth a the squeeze there and often i think it, it won't be and you see this uh overemphasis on that within the cube community, I think, because people love to see decks that try splashing all of these wacky cards and so on. And the 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 content ecosystem really encourages that kind of experimentation because do you want to see someone draft this paint-by-numbers uh, blue-white deck yet again? Or, hey, we, we've picked up this, this sneak attack, so let's try splashing red and let's try getting... We'll, we'll find an Eldrazi and we'll work that in there and we've got all of these cool combos we can tie together. I personally would find that much more exciting to watch than, okay, well, this is a generic blue-white mid-rangey control-y soup deck that I've seen for the 20th time. Like, who even 
cares about that, right? right. Um, so if you're just looking to win, and I think this is this is a dynamic that I'm looking to highlight in my my coverage for the the cube thing this weekend. When you have players cubing with a lot on the line, what do they do? You know, what are their priorities? What are they honing in on and trying to maximize? And I think that often looks very different from if you are watching someone stream the vintage cube, or if you're you know uh, on a Discord call with your friends and you're cubing yourself. Like it, the priorities are really very uh, different there. I would say. All right. Um, somebody on the forums asked, "What would be Dom's secret layer?" So if you had to release a three or five card uh, set, what would those cards be? Uh, I mean, I could do the cards that have trapped me most in cube design over the years. And, you know, if you give me some uh, new art, foily goblin welder, then that can trap me all over again for another two years. Um, I, beyond that, uh, I, I don't know. I, I've really enjoyed the idea, at least, behind the the old border being applied to some of the cube favorites in mm-hmm. Time Spiral Remastered. So I'm really glad that I have a an old border Yorgmoth or Evolutionary Leap for the first time, which I would never get under any other circumstances. So maybe that would be my answer, is just to continue in that vein. Take some cards that I really like from the past few years, reskin them in the old border, and, uh, and go from there. You, there's a, a kind of tie into that question, which is, if I had a, I'm not sure what they're even calling it, but these uh, these tie-ins with other IPs now, where mm-hmm. they've announced a Dungeon and Dragon Dungeons and Dragons thing, and um, you know we've we had the the Walking Dead controversy from the Secret Lair drop last year. For me, I personally don't see a categorical difference between how derivative magic design has been in the past, where like one of the earliest magic sets was literally called Arabian Nights, and based on tropes from the Arabian Nights uh, stories and just trying to work those into a magic set. Um, And then also you've got like Shark Typhoon, which is a barely subtle nod to the movie Sharknado. Um, Have you seen that movie? I I saw the first one. I haven't seen any of the innumerable Oh, there's uh, a whole franchise now. I I only knew of the first one, but... Oh, there's a, a whole franchise there, I think. They really beat okay. that, that dead horse or that, that dead shark uh, into yeah. the ground. Um, but on top of that, you also have a top-down design philosophy, which in some cases is very crudely derivative. So in the original Theros block, it's like, okay, I know this set is meant to be inspired by Greek mythology, and there's a certain level of immersion or suspending my disbelief that goes along with that. But when I see the card and Horse, and it's basically just, hey guys, we made a Trojan horse, but it's not Tro- it's not Troy, it's an Akroan horse. It's like, okay, great, good for you. You know, like that, that that to me, that is as offensive, if not more so, than oh look, this is Rick from the popular TV series The Walking Dead. Let's make a card based on Rick. If anything, that feels more natural to me in a way than that kind of uh showing your leg almost. It's kind of subtle, but really not subtle at all tie-in to actual stories or mythology that has become very yeah. popular so I, I don't i don't get the controversy about that and i think having a really strong view about it that in itself is alienating to me well people like having really strong views on things so. they, they, they sure do yeah <laughs> um okay um i i saved this for last because 
we already talked about how we are a sub-community inside of a sub-community. Um, let's subdivide it a little further. I want to, just for my own sake, talk to you about Survivor. Okay. Um, so you, at least in the past, maybe you, I mean, not, not this year, probably had a Survivor podcast. And I mentioned earlier that I used to uh, work at Major League Gaming. So you can probably guess uh, which season I started watching Survivor again with. Uh, was it the one that uh, Kenny was on? Yeah, that was yeah. Gabon. Um, it is kind of funny that they they gave him the name Kenny because as far as I know, that is the only instance in which he's ever been referred to as Kenny. His tag within Smash was yeah. Ken. On Twitch, he's Ken. I've never... I've met him I, in uh... real life. I've never heard anyone call him Kenny. <laughs> I think his uh his his Chiron on screen on the show was was Ken, but some of the people out there just called him Kenny, and I guess he didn't bother to correct them. Yeah. Um, are you still doing the podcast? I am, as you say. It's uh that part of it, like the covering whatever season is airing live, is necessarily on a hiatus at the moment. But we we've always tried to branch out into other things, you know. Uh, other TV, other pop culture, you know, current affairs, just uh, whatever takes our fancy, really. Mm. And um, at the moment, we've to to pass the time under under COVID, this this long off season, we've come up with this new format, which is basically uh, each episode, so one every week, normal, and then a bonus uh, Patreon run every week. It's this split format. So half of it is a topic about uh, TV, normally reality TV, and then the other topic is something completely different. So uh, we, we did an episode on what it's like to live under the monarchy, which uh, is maybe aged, I'm not sure, well or badly, given the recent events with Harry and Meghan and so on. So might be worth doing a follow-up episode uh, on that. Um, yeah. We play kind of uh, games modeled after various like British panel shows, which are, are one you know surviving national export at this point, it looks like. Um, so we, we try and add some variety in there. It's... Uh, it's not uh, as impossibly niche as a Survivor podcast uh, sounds. Yeah. And uh, what was your your short take on Winners at War? Uh, loved seeing Tony win. I Again, didn't think he could do it the first time. Certainly didn't think he could put it off a second time, but I, I was proven wrong yet again. I thought the season as a whole was n- n- not as good as I maybe hoped from you know, the all-winner season, what could be on paper the most iconic season you could possibly hope for yeah. on Survivor. It, it fell a little bit flat to me. To I me, think it fell of off is... a bit once um, Rob Parvati and Sandra were all out because I it, yeah. was surprised already that they lasted as long as they did. But then once they were gone, I, I felt that, I don't know, some of, the, some of the tension was let out of the season. It did not help that the old school contestants got completely massacred. That, that, that's for sure. Um, but also you have this focus on uh, twists at the expense of organic gameplay. And then the the editing style in recent seasons often kind of leaves a lot of things out or just like zigs and zags in a fairly disjointed way. And so even when the events of that uh, in-game cycle themselves are interesting, often they're not presented in a way that 
mm. it really works for me. Um, so it, it feels like it was a bit less in the sum of its parts. So, you know, the, the, the raw material uh, could have been a lot better. And then also it was hampered by, as you say, you know, all of the old school players going out early, all of the new school players uh, surviving and not to take anything away from them. A lot of them are interesting, but part of the real draw to the season for me is I want to see this person who played 10, 15 years ago to see how they've changed, how their game has changed, how the game has changed around them, whether they can adapt to that. Um, and it felt like that exploration just never really happened this season. Yeah. I guess there are some parallels to Cube where there is mass appeal to this uh, twisty sneak attack style survivor uh, where I don't know if we're going to see any traditional 16 players, two tribes, no tribe swaps uh, seasons coming down the pipeline. No, I think that is a definitely a relic of the past. And if that somehow does come back again, it's going to be this the season will be built explicitly as this is a bad basic season. This is a look into classic Survivor, what the show used to be, versus we're doing this format because it works and we have proof that it worked from the first 20 or so seasons. Mm. And we're going back to that because we're going back to that formula. It's, it's going to be a one-off thing that is meant to highlight the contrast between that and what the show is uh, now. Yeah. Um. Okay, uh, I hear that my baby is now awake, so I, I should probably start to wrap things up. This is about my past my bedtime anyways these days. <laughs> we have a five-month-old at home. Uh, thank you for yeah. coming in. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Uh, we've gotten some very interesting answers from Dom, and I think if you're up for it, I'd... Uh, love to have you back to chat some more sometime or do some set previews, that sort of thing. Yeah, and... 100%. And would also be down to come along and battle, you know, if we, we draw some decks from whoever's cube and uh, we get to uh, you know, battle on Magic Online, but it would always be uh, down for that too. Yeah, definitely. We, um, you've probably caught it, but we now have two accounts with uh, cube cards loaded onto them so we can cube without dealing with the magic online trading interface yes i i don't know which of uh riptide lab and rip lab is the the authentic one that we should be rooting for you know that the hero in the story rather than the villain yeah. or if this is the maybe it's just a spider-man meme you know where both accounts like pointing at each other with identical uh avatars on them yeah and uh yeah thank you to the viewers uh feel free to follow the channel if you want to uh get some notification the next time dom is online and yeah uh whatever time zone you guys are in have a nice day and we'll see you around <laughs>